agenda. Whilst you are doing that, let me take the opportunity to welcome everyone in our first, first meeting in 2022. I hope everyone has rested enough. I know for a fact that we don't rest. We are working 24-7 throughout the year, but uh, I am happy that we are all back at work. And I hope that we will be more energetic than even the previous years. Uh, thank you, Lindy. And um, honorable members, it's with great pleasure to have all of you again. And uh, we know that uh, we finished last year whilst we were very, very tired because of the, I will say, the work that we were doing of the public hearings, which was successful. We last uh, see others that time, and now we will see them. Thank you very much, Lindy, for writing the agenda. It's not going to be a very, very long agenda today. We will just be brief and to the point. Otherwise, everyone is free to discuss and debate. And if you see that this agenda that has been proposed, solely looking at these issues that are here, you can just submit to Lindy whatever that you think is missing that we have to discuss as the committee. With those words, I wish to thank you everyone that is present in the meeting. The next item in the meeting is um, an introduction uh, by us and also support staff. Uh, Lindy, we will start introducing ourselves, which I think, uh, let me try and, and, and open up the video. I don't know whether it's going to come up, but uh, my name is Nungo Simvana. I am being deployed to be the chairperson of the Social Development Portfolio Committee. Um, with my colleagues, which I think they will have to introduce themselves. Uh, let me also give over to the other one who's present in the meeting. Good morning, members. Good morning. Good morning. I am the one and only Honorable Leticia Aris. Um, I want to say to each and everyone, good morning. And it's the first time I see you in this year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aris. Thank you very much, my colleague. The next one who's present, Good morning. Good morning, Chairperson. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Mangane. 
Hi, hi, Honorable Kate. Uh, uh, good morning. My name is Kensani Kate Bilangolo Mahavane. I'm the member of this portfolio committee. I'm happy to be amongst you guys, honorable members today. Thank you yes. very much. Thank you very much for correcting yourself to say guys to us. Thank you, Honorable Kate. The next one. Good morning, Honorable Chair and colleagues, and also staff members. Uh, Happy New Year. My name is Jane Wakamangani. I'm one uh, of this Committee of Social Development. Thank you. Thank you, Mejani. Good morning, honorable members. Uh, coming up. <laughs> morning, honorable members, and, and uh, greetings in the year of 2022. I am Sita and I'm looking forward uh, in this committee. Thanks, Che. Thank you. Thank you, Nanis. Good morning, Chair. Good morning, Chair. My name is Bridget Masango. Hi, Hi, I'm I'm uh, the member of this portfolio committee, and um, I'm so happy to be back with the work of the committee, and uh, wish everyone all of the best, and uh, that God will bless us all. Thanks, Chair. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable President Nkami. <laughs> good morning, Chairperson, and good, good morning, morning, colleagues and the staff and our guests. Um, hey. My name is Alexandra Abrams, and very excited to actually get started on the real work of this Children's Amendment Bill. Morning, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much, Alex. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everybody. I'm Gisela Oppelman, and I'm a member of this committee. (laughs) Are there any other ones, Lindy, that have not introduced from the side of the honorable members? Oh, yes, good, good morning. Uh, good morning. Good uh, morning. Members, good morning. Uh, members of the staff, our guests, uh, compliments of the season, uh, colleagues, honorable members, uh, all of the best for the work ahead and for the new season. And uh, yes. I wish God can protect us and give us strength uh, to render services to our people. Uh, my name Thank is my name is Dikhang Stock. I'm also a member of the Portfolio Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, our whip. Uh, is there anyone, the last one? I think that's all. Can we then say that, um, Lindy? Yeah. Lindy, from your side, I can see that there's a lot. How are we going to do it? 
from the side of the officials. Still there, Lindy? Lindy, where? Kaibu. Honorable members, am I... Siaguzwa, you are audible enough. Hey. Mm. Okay. And where is Lindy, where? Sorry, Chair. Sorry, I think I had a technical glitch. I was yeah. speaking and I was speaking to nobody. Because I was muted. Uh, thank you very much, um, Chair. From our side, I will just um, confirm uh, the support team that is in this meeting just to save time. Yolisa uh, is here, our content advisor. We have um, Siavuya, our researcher is also here. We have Tandi and the executive secretary, and myself, Lindiwe, as the committee secretary of this committee. Chair, also, I wish to confirm that uh, we have nine members which forms a quorum for this committee. Uh, the committee can take uh, formal decisions because we are a quorum. Um, also, Chair, uh, I don't know when, uh, there's also um, Prof who's also here. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Professor thank you, yeah, thank you very much, uh, 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 Ms. Lindy Way, Sabo. Uh, Professor N. Skeleton. Uh, I think we have to make mention of Henny. We are happy to be with her. Uh, let's just go straight to the apologies then. That will be the next item. Chair, um, I've received two apologies. Mm -hmm. um, Member Sukars will be in and out of this meeting. She's taking her daughter to the um uh to the to the doctor daughter to the doctor uh, but she will um observe the proceedings also member fanameve uh, has a doctor's appointment he, she will join the meeting at 10 o'clock those are the two apologies i safe to say chair this meeting is only for members and um and professor as don't have the departmental officials who are formally um, uh, been invited, but they are also here as observers. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Lindy. Let me also welcome the legal advisor uh, by the name of uh, Unati, Mr. Chengane. We are happy that you have joined us. We hope that we will have a very successful meeting today, uh, Unati. Thank you very much for indicating that you are here with us. Can we then adopt the proposed agenda in front of us? Lindwe has already flighted it. Chair, move for the, the adoption of the agenda. Thank you very much. Alex has adopted the agenda. Any second? I'm second. And thank you. thank you very much. Let's proceed with the same agenda that has been flighted. Then the next item is briefing by Prof. Uh, professor, can we quickly give over to you to tell us what you have brought for us? We are happy to be with you, as I have said. Over to you. The platform is yours, Prof. Thank you. 
Good morning, honourable members, and I also acknowledge the presence of uh, the um, support staff and the department officials and members of civil society who are observing. Um, my name is Anne Skelton. I'm a professor at the University of Pretoria, but I'm also a member of the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, and I'll be drawing on uh, that experience um, and my knowledge of the Children's Act also in this presentation. I'm going to just share my screen so that we can see my PowerPoint presentation. Um, I was asked to talk about um, the age of majority, um, and also uh, to draw from international regional um, context. Um, and I know that what has been topical and what people have been wondering about is this whole debate around the harmonization of ages. Um, if the upper age limit of childhood is 18, why do we have so many different um, age limits? So um, I will... Um, the background, I think, to this is, of course, that... Um, over time, the age of majority has moved a little bit in law because um, it has been set at different uh, stages by different societies, and it's based on societal views about children, about maturity, about what defines adulthood. Uh, and this is different for different cultures and uh, it's different for different countries. Um, and over time within the cultures and countries, it has changed. So for example, prior to the Children's Act, the legal age of majority in South Africa was 21. You probably all remember that stage and we still make a big fuss of the 21st birthday, although there's not really any logic to that uh, particularly anymore. Um, the move uh, to 18 as the age of majority um, began worldwide, um, really following the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and the African Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the Child that both set the upper age limit of childhood at 18 years. Uh, actually, of course, we should remember that our own constitution also sets the upper age limit in the sense that it says that everyone below the age of 18 um, is a child and would enjoy children's rights under the constitution. And therefore, it's important to recognize that even if children are allowed to do certain things at an earlier age than the age of majority, that does not make them adults. They remain children and they remain um, subject to the protections that are offered by the law and by the constitution. So for all of these reasons, the Children's Act came in line with that age of 18. We have to remember, of course, that childhood spans 18 years, um, and that's a long time. So uh, it's, it's clear that, that as children grow up, they change. And so we cannot have a one-size-fits-all policy that approaches children who are one year old the same as children who are 17 years old um, at all. 10 years old, you know, they're all at different stages of um, development and maturity. And therefore, child law, whether it's South African or anywhere internationally and regionally, um, these are this idea of children gradually maturing during childhood 
is captured by the concept of evolving capacity. In other words, as a child grows, uh, they start off with very limited capacity. They can't decide things. They can't choose things when they are small. But as they grow older, they become more and more able to do that. And we, we refer to that, that, that growing developmental um, phase as evolving capacity. It is true that children of all ages need some protection. Um, but that has to be balanced with the idea that as children grow older, we also need to help them to prepare for adulthood in a way by uh, giving recognition to their growing autonomy and their maturity as, as they grow older. As they get closer and closer to adulthood, we give them more and more decision-making powers. And I think also um, a kind of modern approach to child law means that when we're making really important decisions about children, um, we, we have to consider their views. So the um, consideration of children's views and opinions starts from quite early on. How much weight one would attach to the views of a seven-year-old, for example, might be different from how how much you would attach to the views of a 15-year-old. Um, and again, you know, this is how evolving capacity helps us to, um, to all, remember, we should always listen to the views of a child when we're making decisions about them. We should know what they want. Um, but what they want will not necessarily be what the decision of a court, for example, uh, or a school might be. But uh, as they grow older, their views will have more and more weight, particularly in personal areas of their lives, um, um, such as uh, which parent to live with. You know, so as children get closer and closer to 18, the courts are very likely to go along with what a child of uh, 16 indicates as their preference. So this flexibility of evolving capacity is, is great in a sense because it helps us work with children who are developing, but it does make it a little bit difficult for lawmakers because obviously in order to provide certainty, lawmakers like yourselves um, need to set age th thresholds for different things um, because we need certainty in the law. Uh, people such as, you know, be it police officers, parents, teachers, uh, social workers all need to know, so at what age can a child do this? Or at what age can a child decide that? And so um, we can't put all of that at the age of majority. So we, we have these different age thresholds. And interestingly enough, this has actually very long been part of um, the law. Um, going back to Roman law, there was um, three phases of childhood. Uh, one, the first one was called infans in Latin, below seven, impubes uh, between seven and 14, and pubes 14 to 18. We, we can recognize from those Latin words um, the word puberty, for example, and the word infant, which we still use in English today. In African customary law, childhood often ended through different markers, such as circumcision or certain rituals being carried out. Um, but even in African customary law, the idea of different ages indicating maturity transitions uh, were also there in plural legal systems. So um, although uh, a ritual might indicate some kind of passage from one stage to another, it might be that the 
the child, the person would still be considered a child until they left the household, for example. So on the harmonization question uh, that often is raised, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child does not require a harmonization of ages. Uh, it gives states, parties, countries, some leeway on where to set these lower and internal age limits. Um, so only if they are very low or if they cause you know, harm, um, does the committee perhaps ask a particular state to raise a certain, uh, an age, an age limit that is below the age of 18. Um, I will come to the age of marriage um, in my next uh, slide, but um, the committee doesn't criticize states that have different ages for different things, unless the, those ages are very, very low. And if they do, if they are, then the committee will generally say, you know, please raise that age limit and sometimes even say preferably up to a certain age, like 14 or whatever it is. So uh, examples of these that we can point to um, is um, the age of sexual consent. Uh, in South Africa, of course, under the Sexual Offences Act, our sexual consent age is 16. Um, that would be considered perfectly acceptable by the Committee on the Rights of the Child. Many countries have a age of cons sexual consent at the age of 16. But we also would probably not raise eyebrows if the age was 15 or 14. If the age was 12, we might, we might say, you know, have you considered raising that age? Um, age of criminal responsibility, uh, the committee um, prefers the age of criminal responsibility to be 14, and this is because of the harmful effects of being taken through the criminal justice system. But again, you know, many states have 12 as a minimum age of criminal responsibility, including South Africa, since um, our parliament um, recently changed the law from 10 up to 12. Age of medical decision-making is also another one where the committee will allow states a wide range of, a large margin, um, because it is considered a very personal area of, of uh, a growing adolescent child's right to be able to make decision. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, we accept that most countries will have staggered ages for this or a lower age than majority. Um, although often, usually, surgery uh, is, is, goes with the age of majority. But other types of medical decision-making could be, could be younger or lower. And you'll remember that last year, there was a little bit of a flurry in the media around the issue of vaccinations and whether or not children would be able to get vaccinations um, even though they were below the age of 18? And the answer is in our law under the Children's Act, they, they would be able to. Um, age at which a child should consent to his or her own adoption is one of the lowest ages that we have in our law. The Children's Act allows children who are 10 or even younger if they have sufficient maturity um, to indicate whether they want to be adopted. So let's say child is, is uh, 10 or 11 or even nine, but quite a mature child, then uh, we would also want the court has to know what the views of the child are before making a decision to finalize the adoption. Again, this is because it is such an important decision and children of that age can decide, well, do I want to, to live with these people? Do I want to be adopted by these people? Um, 
or for example, you know, it could be a situation where the mum has remarried and she wants the stepfather to adopt the child. It's very important to know whether the child also wants that to happen. So as we can see then, uh, it's very fluid and, and flexible, and um, that does make it untidy, I acknowledge. However, um, to capture evolving capacities, it seems there really isn't another way. I should say something particularly about the age of marriage, because there has been a global mobilization against child marriages and a call to set the age of, eight, uh, of marriage at eight, 18 years for both boys and girls. Um, and in uh, the African Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the Child, this is absolutely clear. It's, it says the age of marriage should be 18 for both boys and girls. The UN um, Convention is actually not so clear. Um, and that's one of the differences between the two, the Convention and the Charter. But um, despite that, that uncertainty, uh, the CRC committee does generally call on states parties to set the age of marriage at 18. So uh, the committee has gone, despite the kind of lack of clarity in the convention itself, the committee has moved to that position of, look, you know, marriage is a lifelong thing. There are so many possible harms and abuses that can occur. Let's, you know, let's make sure that states set the age of marriage at 18. But interestingly enough, the committee does not call on states to raise their age of sexual consent to the same level. And sometimes uh, people find this confusing. Well, you know, what are you saying? People can have sex, but they don't have to get married. And of course, from some religious perspectives, that's questionable and so on. So why do we have these differences? Well, uh, the problem is if you set your age of consent uh, at 18, then a lot of children, because that would then be an offence to engage in sex below a certain age, um, the committee doesn't want to see children who engage in consensual sexual behaviour being treated as criminals. And by the way, we actually have much the same approach to marriage. We don't really take a highly criminalisation uh, approach to the age of marriage either. We simply ask states to, to bring their law in line, but we don't, we certainly would never want to see children prosecuted um, and even prosecuting parents um, who have consented to their child's marriage doesn't seem broadly um, a, a wise way to go because the child is going to go back to live with the parents if that, that marriage is nullified due to the, the problem with the child's age. So the, the idea is to um, make a law and then try to find ways to help children who've got trapped into child marriages to get out of those marriages to provide the support and help that they need. So um, the upper age limit of childhood at 18 is not, in my view, controversial. It is a, a world standard that almost all countries follow, um, and South Africa's following of that uh, is not really um, out of step at all. It's absolutely in line with international and regional practice. The setting of internal lower age limits is appropriate, in fact, in recognition of the evolving capacity of the child. So to answer the question, is it advisable to harmonize ages? You know, should we tidy it up? Why, why 12 here? Why 14 there? Why 16 there? And so on. Well, generally, from a legal perspective, it isn't considered necessary. 
Um, but if harmonization of ages is considered, then it must be done according to an evidence-based approach and the harmonization should not result in rights being reduced because we shouldn't go backwards on our rights commitments, particularly in a constitutional democracy like South Africa, where we, where we prize our respect for children's rights um, and therefore um, harmonizing that, that um, goes back on advances we've made um, would, would possibly be considered to be a retrogression. And um, in, in human rights law, it's not a good idea to, to regress, to go backwards. Um, but um, those would be the, the, the indications that I could give about if, if any harmonization of ages is considered, these would be the two really important principles. It must be evidence-based. There must be a good reason for doing it. And secondly, um, no rights reductions should result. Um, but as I've said, it, it, it doesn't really legally, it's not necessary. Thank you for listening. And I'm here to answer any questions or receive any comments. Yes. Are you done? Yes, that's my presentation. Um, okay. I'm just here to answer any questions that you might have or okay. comments. Yeah, thank you very much, Prof. Uh, uh, honorable members, can I check uh, the questions out of the presentation by Prof? Uh, can uh, I can see an uh, honorable Alice Hand, uh, honorable Alexa Brahms Hand. The other hands will come up. Over to you, honorable Aris. Um, thank you, Chair. And thank you very much, Prof, for the presentation. Can you hear me? Chair, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Oh, yes, you. yes, Aris. Thank you very much, um, Prof, for the presentation. Um, I just have a question that I would like to ask. Um, as we have in these days, we find that teenage pregnancies where children become mothers as young as 12 years old. And if you look at the children of these days, they are maturing much faster than the age of 18. Now, my question is that in terms of their rights, where do you see them? Do you still see them or do you still classify them as part of the minor because they have the responsibility of a parent now? So I just need clarity on that. And then in terms of, uh, you have said that consensual sex being at the age of 16. So which means that at the age of 16, when you have consensual sex, you already can become a parent. You know, you can conceive. So where do you draw really the line between the 
uh, age of maturity in terms of 18 is that in this time that we live still uh, age that we truly can say that is the age of maturity. Because as I said, children as young as 12 years, you know, already conceived in these terms. Thanks. Thank you, Honorable uh, Harris. Uh, Honorable Alex. Uh, thank you, Chairperson, and thank you, Professor Skelton, for the presentation. Um, my question, um, I would like to um, hear Prof's point of view um, on, you know, intersex um, children. And we had a presentation from the organization involved in intersex regarding, you know, consent and um, parental consent when it comes to um, these medical operations um, to change a child's um, sex. And we also heard from the organization that it has long lasting and sometimes irreversible, you know, emotional, mental scars um, when these children grow up um, to adulthood. And unfortunately, it's sometimes still, a, it's still being practiced in hospitals where doctors undertake you know, this um, intersex um, operation, you know, just on, you know, parental consent. So, yes, 12 is the age um, for when, you know, children can consent to medical procedures. And, you know, if they don't have parents, you know, that responsibility then falls on the provincial HOD to make these medical um, um to provide medical consent, yes. So I'd just like to hear Professor's um, viewpoint on intersex um, um, surgeries and the role between parents and doctors and the child involved um, in those operations. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Abrams. And I also see the hand of Honorable Masango, Honorable Shongo, and Honorable Stock. Over to you, Honorable Bridget. Thank you, Chair. And thank you so much, uh, Prof, for the presentation. It was uh, short and sweet and to the point. Um, I just wanted to, to ask, um, some of the comments that were coming out of the public hearings were comments that were, uh, if one could attribute them to anything, it would be from a protection sort of um, position by the caregivers, you know, parents and all those people that were raising the, the they're making the comments in terms of uh, they felt, at least from what I could gather, they felt that they, they are, they do not have any role to play in protecting their children because the law has gone ahead and 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 set out all these age limits and so they felt helpless like they felt that there is no they have no role to play uh, in terms of making sure that their children are still protected from things like child marriages uh, the children you know uh, ha having um, 
sexual interaction, uh, sexual um, interactions with older people and, and things like that, because they can make up their mind about uh, what to do in, in things that parents still feel that they should have a role to play in protecting the children. So my, my question is, um, in, in the deciding of the various ages uh, uh, of maturity, uh, even though um, they are flexible in order for them to be still based on the best interest of the child, was protection or was the role of parents ever considered? And to follow that on with a question that says, uh, the prof was saying that if... Um, if we want to harmonize, if 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 harmonization is 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 discussed, it must be based on on research. It must be based on evidence based research and things like that. I just wondered what form would that evidence based research take in if if it's possible to actually just say it would it would have to cover one, two, three, and four. Um, but otherwise, it makes so much sense to hear the about the evolving um, uh, capacity and, and all those things, which then means that it doesn't um, restrict, you know, the, 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 the children and the, the caregivers and the law even uh, in terms of deciding uh, on a case by case basis when these things have to go to, to before the law and things like that. But thank you so much, uh, Prof, for the presentation. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much, Honorable Masangu. Then can we give over to Honorable Stembile? So thank you very much, Chair. Uh, and thanks for the presentation, Prof. I think Honorable Masangu has covered me. I also wanted to know that when taking these decisions, were parents consulted or considered? Because taking from the public hearings, most of the complaints would come from society and uh, community about these child marriages. So uh, like I said, Honorable Masangu's question really covered me. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Honorable Mufongo. Can we give over to Honorable Stock? Over to you, Honorable. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chairperson uh, and uh, Honorable members in the meeting. Uh, thank you very much. Let me also join my colleagues in appreciating the presentation uh, by Prof. Skelton. It's quite comprehensive and quite detailed as well. And it also clarifies a number of uh, misunderstanding or the confusion that some of us had in relation to the definition of a child, uh, whether it's at 16 or whether it's at 18, as prescribed by the South African Constitution. So I want to uh, put something to you, Prof, uh, in terms of the constitutionality of any legislation uh, that prescribes the age of children uh, 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 to the age below 18 years. Because we know that the constitution were all clear, and you also indicated in your presentation uh, that in terms of the constitution, uh, the age of children is actually prescribed uh, in terms of the constitution at the age of 18. So I want to find out from you, Prof, where does it put us now as a committee 
uh, if we come across any legislation or any other uh, best practice that is being uh, actually put forward or actually raised in terms of the the research uh, that has been conducted, where does it put us as a committee? Uh, and I also want to appreciate the fact that you uh, you actually went to the extent of also indicating in your presentation about the international, uh, the national, and also the regional uh, practices in your presentation. I actually want to appreciate that. But uh, the only thing, Prof, like I indicated to you, which I want you to actually uh, be more elaborate and put more emphasis on for the purpose of the meeting is to stay in terms of the constitutionality of any other legislation that comes or which was actually put forward. Which one is superior more than the other? Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, Honorable. With, uh, thank you. Uh, I can see that Honorable uh, Sukars have joined us. Uh, I'm not sure, Honorable Alexander, is it the old end or? New Angie, I forgot a question. Okay, let's give over to you and then give over to Marie. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, just a question that I, I thought about right now. I know Prof said that, um, you know, um, there's no need to harmonize um, the ages, but the beginning of every year, we are, we debate, uh, you know, education and the fact that our schooling system is in a crisis. Um, we look at high dropout, dropout numbers and we know that children drop out for a myriad of, of reasons. But now we're saying that for schooling, you can't force a child over the age of 15 to go to school. However, the average child is only in grade seven when they are 15 years old. And, um, you know, just like to, and then in the public hearings, we heard parents say, but we can't force our children to go to school because they know their rights and they know um, they can't be forced to go to school over the age of 15. And with this education crisis that we are currently facing in South Africa, wouldn't that harmonization of ages, um, you know, help our education system and also empower our parents um, to, um, with their children, but also, you know, at 15, and if you are dropping out because of peer pressure, it only sets your, you back as a child by not finishing school or not choosing to go to a trade school, um, you know, um, in that sense. So, you know, understand that there's no need to harmonize, but surely the argument for improved education to harmonize there is there not one. Thanks, Jay. All over to you and welcome, Honorable Sukers. Thank you, Chair, and um, good morning to everyone, and especially to our committee, to our committee members. Um, I am very glad uh, to, even if it is on the platform, um, to be again uh, busy in, in social development. Um, my question, Chair, I have missed uh, the presentation. I, however, have gone through the presentation. I think um, it would be very helpful if uh, Professor could uh, comment. Um, on the following, um, we are dealing with various piece, uh, pieces of legislation. We are currently um, in the basic education space busy with the Bella Bill. Um, 
that it's just starting. Then we have the Children's Amendment Bill, which we've just concluded the public hearings, and of course that this presentation is speaking to. Now, the one thing about the harmonizing of age um, is very important for us as a committee, as stressed by uh, my colleagues previously, because it certainly was one of the issues that was raised consistently um, during the public hearings in terms of um, the differences in the different legislation. Now, one of the public year, one of the hearings in the early part, um, Professor mentioned how um, the legislation is siloed almost. And one of the things that we need to, um, I think, attempt to do in this committee is to be cognizant of the various um, legislations and its impact on this bill, which is the Children's Amendment Bill. So the issue of harmonization is very important to us as a committee when we are considering the legislation um, coming up. And so I would appreciate it again, if um, you could reiterate for us, um, you know, the, um, in the, the, I see that it's not important in the presentation. And of course, I didn't hear your, the nuance in, in, in you presenting it verbally. It's an issue that we, however, um, strongly consider, or I do, um, because we're dealing with various legislation and the need for us for that legislation to speak to each other. Then secondly, um, we are seeing now with the Epstein case that has happened overseas and the uh, very, um, uh, you know, the, the, the settlement that has happened now with, um, you know, a high profile individual, the impact of of um, certain conduct on children, especially early initiation into sexual, um, um, you know, sexual activity. And when a child gives consent and years later as an adult, the impact of that on them. So the issue of informed consent as well in terms of this legislation is very important uh, for us as a committee. And if you could um, please, in terms of also its impact on harmonization of age, because those are the things that we need to consider. How is children protected in legislation? And when can a child actually give informed consent? There was um, confusion, or not confusion, but difference of opinion in terms of the interpretation of informed consent when parents can give and, and all of that. It would be really helpful if you could elaborate in your from your point of expertise around informed consent and the consideration of the law in terms of that. Um, Again, we also um, are faced as a country now with young people at the ages of 8, 10 and 11 having abortions in our constituencies. So informed consent for this committee is very important and again, the harmonizing of age. So it's within this context that I would like for you uh, to provide us with, um, you know, from, uh, from your um, experience and um, expertise to give us insight in terms of that and how we could apply ourselves in terms of the law. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Honorable Stokers. Uh, Prof, I think uh, honorable members have covered all what we wanted to know, especially when we... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. Let me first give you honorable Kate. Thank you for reminding me. No, th thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Mm. When 
and thank you very much, uh, Prof, for the presentation. One issue, Chair, that I want to, I want the, the professor maybe to elaborate on it when, while giving the, the answers. It's uh, about our, our constitution vis-a-vis -vis our culture. Um, talking about harmonization of age, you'll find that most yeah. of the... Chair? Yes, I'm listening. I'm sorry for that. Okay. Uh, I, I wanted to say that uh, our constitution is silent about our diverse cultures. Because when you look at the child marriages, some of them, it's happened because of uh, our cultures. Uh, mostly it's parents who will consent for, 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 for kids to be married by this adult. But our constitution is, is quiet about it. So what is it that Professor maybe can advise this portfolio committee that maybe we'll see it uh, proper for us as a committee to amend in order to find this harmonization of age when it comes to uh, uh, child marriages. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Kate. I think that's what I was going to sum up uh, the questioning, because really we encountered uh, so many questions during the public hearing in terms of these different ages. The other department is talking about 16 years and ourselves are talking about 18 years. Really, what is it that you can advise us of out of all what you have presented? Can I give over to you, Prof? Yes, thank you very much. Really uh, very interesting questions, and I'm going to try and answer uh, all of them in turn. So the question from Honourable Aris, um, relating to the, uh, the whole point that, you know, children seem to be having, getting pregnant young, and getting, getting, uh, having children young, and, and what, what impact does that have? Do they then become adults by view of the fact that they've had children? Um, interestingly enough, our law uh, used to be, or and maybe in a way still is, that when you get married, you become a major at no matter what age you're at. However, since we have a constitution with a Bill of Rights, um, the, the position is now that even if you get married, I would say you still enjoy your protection as a child under the age of 18. Are you able to make certain decisions, for example, in relation to your, your child? If you have a child, you aren't married and you have a child below the age of 18. Yes, you can make some decisions, but our act, the Children's Act, does not give guardianship to the mother until she's 18. Uh, her parents are the guardians of her child until she's 18. Um, and so we still recognize that she doesn't have full uh, capacity to make all the decisions in relation to her child, and she'll need the assistance of her parents and guardians uh, to do that. 
Um, and then when she turns 18, then she becomes fully an adult um, and a mother. However, um, I would say it would be important if there was a decision being made about her child, such as should her child be given up for adoption, it would be essential to take her views into consideration, even if she isn't the guardian of the child, because she's the mother of the child, right? What would happen uh, if she were, if a, a mother of a child were to be arrested for shoplifting? Um, she would still be a child under our Child Justice Act, and she would still be a child under our constitution. So that is necessary because she needs to be protected from the harmful effects of the criminal justice system. So I hope I'm showing you, I hope uh, through my explanations, although I understand they're kind of more complex than saying at this age you're an adult and then you can do everything and, and below this age, you know, you're a child and you, you don't have any choices and you can't make decisions, but you are fully protected. It isn't that simple. It's actually a little bit of a, a balancing. And in my view, that balance is important to be able to recognize that children, you know, are do sometimes get pregnant in their teens, get uh, have a baby, and we would want them to be able to say, I want to keep my child. I don't want to give this child up. I don't want to have an abortion. I want to make a decision for myself about what to do. Okay, so um, that's why you can see the importance of recognizing that on the one hand, she should be able to make certain decisions in relation to her child, her choices. But on the other hand, uh, if something befalls her, like she gets caught up in the criminal justice system, she needs to be seen as a child, even though she has a child as well. Um, and, and the way our law works at the moment, all of that is recognized because the constitution is clear that below the age of 18, you are still considered a child and therefore all the protections would be available to you. Um, I'm going to come in more detail to, so does that make the younger ages unconstitutional, which was the question that Honorable Stock asked, um, but I'll, I'll come to it uh, later. Then um, the, the, the first question that was asked by Honorable Abrahams was the intersex question. So I can tell you that um, at the Committee on the Rights of the Child, um, we often give advice to states to say, that they should move away from um, surgery that is unnecessary for intersex children. So um, sometimes surgeries are necessary because some intersex children, for example, can't urinate. So they would need to have surgeries to be able to, to urinate properly. Um, but, but the kind of surgery that is considered unnecessary is surgery that would change a child into a girl or a boy um, and that should not be done at birth or in the early childhood because you don't know yet um, what that person feels they are. So gender is very much an internal issue. It's uh, something that people um, have as their um, sense of their identity. And that we can only see as they grow older. And therefore, it makes a lot of sense not to... Uh, parents might find it convenient to say, I want to raise my child as a boy or a girl, and therefore let's just try and go with the surgeries that will help us uh, align with that decision. Parents will still possibly have to make a, a decision um, 
whether to raise their child primarily as a girl or boy, because society is so binary at the moment. Um, but um, perhaps as time goes on, we'll, we'll get people to accept that, you know, sometimes you, you're not, you, you can't choose for the child and the child over time will demonstrate and be clear, ah, okay, well, this child's definitely looking like um, she is playing with the toys that are for girls and she's wanting to select in clothes that are for girls. So therefore, you know, she's a girl. But all surgeries that are unnecessary should be delayed until um, the child can be involved in that decision making. What has been happening internationally, although I'm not so aware that it's a big issue yet in South Africa, but maybe maybe in some families it is a big issue, is that there are now intersex children in their teens who are kind of demanding to be able to make decisions um, about surgeries, as well as hormonal treatments. Um, and sometimes they are, you know, demanding to be able to transition to the sex they feel more um, familiar with. This is a difficult one because on the one hand, it does still seem to make sense to stick with our rule that surgery must be delayed until 18. Um, that's what our law says, and there's good reasons for that. Um, but of course, hormonal treatments can also have quite irreversible effects. Um, and uh, that would probably that's not surgery, that's medical treatment. So there I would say that the law should probably uh, leave some space open to allow parents and uh, doctors um, and to be, you know, have strong ethical standards um, that allow for decisions around medical treatment to be made um, in a way that really uh, is in the best interest of the child and takes the child's views into consideration, but keeps in mind that, you know, um, Adolescence is a time of great change and that sometimes a decision that is taken at 14, you know, that person might feel differently later. But the facts and circumstances of each case almost need to be determined there. Um, so that, that is a complex area and it's actually very new in the law to have to think about this. So what I, I hope that I've left you with the impression that there's a very clear answer to babies and early childhood and it's more complex when we're talking about adolescence, inevitably, because of this tension that we find between protection and autonomy, growing autonomy. But let me tell you that as a child rights lawyer, I know we cannot escape that tension. We cannot escape that slight feeling of contradiction. If we do so, we tend to harm children. We should try to keep it fluid. And I know uh, as lawmakers, your instincts may, may want to go against that, but I would, I would urge you not to, not to do so. Um, the next question I will respond to is the one by Honorable Masangu, which <clears throat> was to do with um, parents, uh, parents feeling that they are frustrated because they, they don't know what the role they should be playing. Well, it's an interesting point and I understand it. And anyone who's parented um, adolescents knows how hard this is. Even if you have a whole lot of legal backup behind you, um, it's still difficult to parent adolescents because they are expressing their growing autonomy and you as a parent are beginning to lose your control. I think we all, we all know that. Any parent knows what that feels like. <clears throat> 
Um, and any anyone who's been an adolescent as well knows how much you push the boundaries, right? If you don't get the nice an the answer you want from one parent, you go to the other one. Um, so that's just a reality. And perhaps the really good answer to that is let's help people to strengthen their parenting of adolescence because that would be a good solution. Our courts have already kind of expressed opinions on this uh, in an ex to an extent because um, some of you will know the Teddy Bear Clinic case where the Teddy Bear Clinic um, challenged the constitutionality of the um, age of, uh, there was a phase in our law where children below the age of 16, if they engaged in consensual sex between 12 and 16, would be charged or could be charged under the law. Our constitutional court struck that down because it exposed children to too much harm for decisions that are not essentially criminal decisions, right? And um, in doing so, the arguments on uh, the other side um, were, well, you know, from the state, for example, and from uh, the amicus curiae on the other side was, but we need the legal process. We need these laws here to help us parent. The Constitutional Court said, no, you don't. No, you don't. You can still make all the choices as parents that you want to make, and you don't need the law um, to do that. What the law has to do is to think about what effects would there be if we start putting children in prison uh, or taking them into the criminal justice system for behaviours that are essentially not criminal, because that's the public, that's public law. You know, and um, what you choose, I mean, our law allows children to have sex before they get married. But you as a family, you can still choose to say to bring your children up to say in our household, that is not the law. in our household. We uh, don't have sex until we get married. That's your choice. The law allows you to raise your parents, your children as you would like to. But if something goes wrong, and it does, and your child does have sex before marriage, the police won't be knocking at the door. You as parents, you know, can bring in whoever you think would be appropriate, the elders from the community or the um, religious uh, leaders, you know, to help you explain to your child what, what, why you think that's wrong. Um, but you don't really want the police coming about personal issues like that. So I hope that that helps to answer that question. Um, were parents consulted in the uh, drafting of the Children's Act? Um, well, there was a broad consultative process back in the 1990s um, when the Law Reform Commission was drafting this law. I was a member of that Law Reform Commission committee, and we did have wide-ranging um, consultations which did include Parents. Of course, to be able to include all parents is pretty tricky. Um, and I, I can't say that, you know, uh, huge numbers of parents were consulted. Um, but I do think that the Department of Social Development has an important role to play in helping parents to understand and be able to navigate the difficult path of, of parenting in the modern age. Um, and uh, I think that's where we should, you know, think about putting our efforts, maybe put in something that um, ensures that parents that are struggling can get access to good services to support them in their parenting. Um, the next question was about um, when making decisions, um, were these decisions um, 
I think it was it was a similar question about um, how do we make um, oh sorry there was another question from um, Honourable Masangu which is important and that is well you know if any harmonisation is going to happen I've said well it should be evidence based and you know and, um, the question was well how would we actually go about doing that if we did do it well. The Constitution is a good guide in this regard because the, the in, in determining whether something is constitutional, the Constitution will always look at, well, look, what was the harm that you were trying to prevent through this law? And then um, if the law that you passed did it in fact solve that problem, but was there something less restrictive you could have done to stop the, that change in the law. So let me say on the issue of parenting, for example, if if uh, if we say we need to have a law that criminalizes children for consensual sex because parents need more help with their parenting, the Constitutional Court said, no, they don't, um, because basically that doesn't go into the area of parenting. Parenting is a separate issue um, and you can use less restrictive means. That's what the Constitutional Court looks at. Were there less restrictive means than changing the law? Um, for example, if you decided to raise the, the, the a minimum age um, to access condoms um, from the age of 12, um, and you raised it up to 14 or 16 because it was the same as the age of consent, what the Constitutional Court would want to know if you were challenged on that would be um, what was the basis on which you decided that? Did you, you know, what evidence did you look at? Did, was this legal change really necessary? And was there a less restrictive means of achieving the same purpose that you intended by that harmonization? So that's always important to keep in mind when you're making decisions, especially, especially if they go, if they retrogress. Um, in other words, if they seem to go backwards on previous rights gains. <clears throat> um, so um, the next question that brings me actually to this question about constitutionality, the question asked by Honourable Stock, which I think is, is a good question. It's an important one uh, to examine. And that is, OK, so the Constitution says childhood is at the age of 18. So won't the Constitutional Court be upset if any of the other ages are lower? No, they, they won't be. And um, what they would be worried about is if something is harmful to children um, and the age is set lower, um, and uh, they would they accept that there are different ages at which things can happen. Let me give an example. The court has dealt with age limits below 18 before, like the age of sexual consent. They didn't say the age of sexual consent should be changed. They were quite comfortable with it at 16, right? Uh, what they said was that children between 12 and 16 um, shouldn't be criminalized if they engage in sex, but that didn't change the age of consent. The age of consent is still um, 16. So if someone who's older uh, has sex with a person under 16, that is still a crime. So it's only when they're both below 16 and over 12. Why 12? Because below 12, children are considered to be unable to make any decisions relating to sex. Um, and our law is clear on that. So it doesn't matter if a person has any sexual interactions with a person below the age of 12, 
the child's consent does not come into it at all. It is always considered to be non-consensual. Um, and if it's penetrative at all, it's rape. Um, so our, our court and our legal system is used to different ages. So lawyers don't really have, and courts don't really have a problem with this. But one good example, as I think, is also the uh, case that was brought about minimum sentences um, for child offenders who are 16 and 17. So our law said, uh, a, a new law was passed, the um, Sentencing Amendment Bill, a few years back, which brought children, 16 and 17-year-olds, into the realm of minimum sentences. And that meant they could be sentenced to very long sentences, including life imprisonment, in fact. Um, and the constitutional, that was challenged by the Center for Child Law. Um, and the, the um, Constitutional Court eventually ruled in that case that um, it was not permissible to, uh, to bring children into the realms of minimum sentences. But interestingly enough, the court said ages below 18 can be set for certain things, but then it must be evidence-based and there must be um, less restrictive means of achieving the same purpose. Um, and the point is that children of 16 and 17 can be sentenced to lengthy sentences up to 25, but not as a minimum sentence, as a last resort. And that's what our constitution says, also what the UN Convention says. So I hope that helps to um, throw some light, you know, on this, you know, it's complex, it's complex what we're talking about, but that the Constitutional Court is perfectly comfortable with lower ages at which one can do things. Um, but uh, if harm is very clear, criminalization in particular is something that they will be very concerned about, then they will generally feel that children have to be protected against those harmful effects of courts, criminalization, prisons, etc. Um, oh, one question that I missed, which I thought was a very interesting point, was um, the age of education ending at 15. I have to agree with you that that one does stick out as a sore, sore thumb. The reason for it is the inter, in, international labor organizations rules. They set um, the age of work at 15, and therefore um, the age of compulsory education was set to match that. It's quite old, though, um, that requirement that children um, must be in compulsory education up until actually it's up until the end of the year in which they turn 15, is what our law says. So that is in line with the ILO convention. Um, would it be appropriate to raise that to 16, say? Um, actually, 16 is a far more common age in our age. Uh, you know, 15's really weird. We don't see 15 anywhere else. We, we've got 12, we've got 14, we've got 16, and we've got 18. And then the only one that is 15 is that, that education one. So I think you pick a good one. If you talk about harmonizing, um, that one might not be too a bad one. But remember, again, what is, what is the evidence space for it? And is there a less restrictive means to, um, to, to achieve that goal that you would have in harmonizing? Generally speaking, tidying up the statute book isn't a great reason for doing it. Um, and then uh, another question that I was asked was, um, 
harmonizing across the different uh, laws, you know, isn't shouldn't we be harmonizing across the different laws? Well, yes, to the extent that you don't want any contradictions. If you, you know, you don't want a contradiction in one law that then makes it difficult to understand how the other law could work. Um, one example of that was that the one law said that you could access condoms, but the other law said that you would be committing a crime if you engaged in consensual sex between 12 and 16. That problem was solved by the teddy bear clinic judgment um, and the laws that uh, the, the subsequent legal changes, because now you can, or at least you won't be treated as a criminal if you engage um, sexually. And I think the reason for this again was that our laws, you know, were passed with the idea in mind that okay we don't we don't we want to discourage children from early sexual debut but if they're going to do it we want to avoid pregnancy and we want to avoid stds and aids and so you know it's it's better to to provide the barriers that that can protect children under those circumstances um and then the last one i think was the question that i was asked about um the culture and is our constitution silent? Actually, our constitution says that that customary law and culture um, can be followed, provided that it doesn't contradict um, the constitution. Um, what I can tell you unequivocally about this is that the con Convention on the Rights of the Child and the African Charter on the rights and welfare of the child are very clear about the fact that the age of marriage um, should be the same, even, even if we're talking about marriage under customary law. Um, and actually, our, um, our customary law marriage act also sets 18 as the age of marriage. But of course, I am aware that there are many other cultural practices um, that are, are different. And so, um, <clears throat> Um, what I can tell you is that if South Africa were to not raise the age of marriage to 18 and under customary law, um, or to, let me put it this way, would not would not make it clear that their age of 18 covers all kinds of marriages, including customary law, the Com Committee on the Rights of the Child and the African Committee of Exports is likely to ask South Africa, why did you not? Uh, raise the age of 18 for all kinds of, and make it clear that that applied to all kinds of marriages. Um, so, so that much I, I can say. I know it's complex to try to um, conform and to and to um, have plural legal systems within these um, constitutional and international regional regional frameworks. Um, but that is at least something that I see. The committees are both very consistent in the feedback that they give to states about. I hope I haven't taken too long, but. You you asked a lot of questions, so I had a lot of answers to do. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, maybe let me also check whether is there any follow-up. I don't see anyone. I think you have been uh, clear enough. You made us to be clear on what was being asked by the communities. Then uh, if it is the case, honorable members, uh, oh, Kate, I can see your hand, my honorable member. Let's give over to you the follow-up. 
I can say that mine is not that uh, answered, but I understand her because she said it's a complex question. Really, it, it wasn't. Because the issue I was raising is the issue of child marriages that mostly happen when parents want children to get married at an early age without, without, without their consent, the, the children's consent, but the parents who are consenting for them. And the constitution is quiet about that. I was saying, what, what can be the advice from her? But I understand she said it's a complex. So thank you very much, Chair. Sorry, Chair, if I can then answer that question. Um, so when, when uh, children always have to consent to marriage under our law because the Children's Act requires that. Um, and so um, it's, it should not be happening. Uh, I understand that it might be happening, um, but it should not be happening that children are being married off without their consent. Um, and um, let, me clear, let me be clear that what I'm saying is that I think South Africa should uh, make the age of marriage 18 and should be clear that it applies to all kinds of marriage. Okay, thanks, thanks, Prof. Um, I don't see any hand for now, but I think, Prof, uh, because it is really a complex um, issue, <laughs> we still have some few questions that we have to ask, but we can maybe discuss this first and maybe agree upon on what is it, because the reality of the matter, when the communities are asking us as social development portfolio committee members, we, we can't say we are not sure, but we had to tell them, because if you don't know anything, you have to explain and tell people that this one you still have to go and consult. Because what was really a critical issue is this thing of the constitution and ourselves as departments, not only social development, but uh, even other departments, as I have said to you. And this consent thing, when communities are asking, how do you think that a 12-year-old can be able to have a consent in terms of procedures, uh, medical procedures that can be undertaken? But I think you have made some clarity on some of other things. Honorable members, can we excuse Professor and thank her very much for the effort. I know you wanted to present this last year. You've been asking from Lindy where the date, but we were too tight by that time. Thank you. We will appreciate for, from you to update us on a few of other things that are coming up. Thank you, Professor. You are being excused. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Members. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Uh, honorable Members, let's proceed with the, our agenda. The next item on the agenda. Uh, Lindy? I think it's 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 the uh, yes. I think it's the content advisor that needs to brief us about the public hearings that we have undertook. Am I right? 
Yes, you are correct, Chair. Okay, thanks. Over to you, uh, content advisor. Brief us about the very critical issues that came up with the hope that every member managed to get the report, a summarized one, and were able to read it. And then Yoli uh, uh, is going to assist us in, in that. Over to you, Yoli. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chairperson. And uh... Happy New Year to all the members, my colleagues uh, from the department and um, from the committee. I was happy to see that all of us, we are here, we are safe, we are protected during the holidays time. Okay, Chairperson, let me just start sharing. Um, not to waste time. The presentation oh. is a bit long. But Chairperson, I would like to maybe propose that when I come to the issue of the different age, the, the issue of age, that I skip that one because Professor has already uh, made a presentation and the members engaged on it. I had forwarded the, the, the report to, to uh, Professor Skelton as well. So her presentation must have maybe made reference or she might have seen what was raised in the communities regarding the issue of age. So I would just ask the members of the committee that when I come to that section, just to save time, that I skip that one because it's already been dealt with. Nothing different is there that will really uh, go against what the professor has already presented. Having said that, Chair, as a, as a, as a, in my opening remarks, uh, there, quite, there were quite a number of issues that were raised. Uh, I've flattered them. Um, the issue of documentation, the issue of definitions didn't come up that much. Uh, the issue of children not being documented, it came out almost to, from all the provinces. The issue of parental responsibilities and rights. The children's rights to privacy, it almost touches to the discussion that we just had. So I'm just going to highlight that part, Chairperson, as well. But I think Professor somehow has uh, addressed it uh, with the questions that we asked. The 3.5, Chair, as I asked, maybe I shouldn't just skip that one because it's already been dealt with. A little bit of child marriages, I'm going to talk about it because the other issues that we raised that go beyond the issue of age. Um, then we had a lot of issues that were raised on the ECD. And uh, foster care, Chairperson also came up, uh, adoption services, a uh, little bit on the referral and placement of children in alternative care. Then also a little bit about the National Child Protection Register was also raised. And there were some uh, other comments were made on the implementation of the bill. There's 3.10 which is a new proposal. This maybe members may be aware of. It was also raised during our national public hearings. It also was raised in our provincial ones. There were other service delivery issues that not necessarily relate to the bill that were raised. Just as an introduction, Chair, um, just to mention that um, what this presentation is about, and it's basically to highlight the key themes that came from the provincial hearings on the bill. And I'd like to just uh, mention to the committee or to emphasize that the committee should really look at the reasons that were given by the public on the issues that they raised, because I think those are important for the committee to, 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 to consider when they're deliberating. 
and most critically than the recommendations that the public made. And also just to also highlight that uh, some issues that were raised, they are in a way interrelated. For example, like we just discussed now when it comes to the issue of the sufficient age or the, the, the age of majority, when it comes to child marriages and inconsistencies between the legislation, which now we just dealt with in our chair, and was also read with regard to the exit age from children from the alternative care, which in this case, the foster care. Also, Chair, uh, what we just discussed as well, the children's rights to privacy was raised in relation to parental rights, which Honorable Masango also alluded to when she was when she asked a question. Chair, just to go through the statistical analysis, which is also important when we do our analysis of the of anything that we do, um, especially this one. Uh, if you look at the people who attended across provinces, Chair. We have a record of 4,095 people who attended. Then we had 526 people who made submissions. We also had that close this, uh, uh, session with the children from the or, uh, representatives from the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. There were about 38 of those children. We also had uh, seven written submissions that were submitted from learners who were uh, uh, came from a school for, for children with special needs that was in um, in Northwest, in the Lekwa Timane local municipality. Those children, they came into the hearings. And just to mention, Chair, that they came under the impression that they were going to make a, a presentation or a submissions, but because certain procedures, as we advise in terms of following that framework, on child participations were not um, done. So those children could not for their protection because the, the, the session was um, televised, it was broadcasted. So to protect those children in line with the frameworks for children, then they were advised to submit those uh, their, 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 their presentations, which now were captured in the report. So we have those seven submissions that were also captured. Person, just to break it down in terms of gender representation, uh, out of the 526 um, uh, uh, participants or people who made uh, presentations, we had 367 females and we had 159 males. The provinces that had the highest number uh, of uh, representation in terms of women, it was the Mpumalanga, which 69, Eastern Cape, 51, Gauteng, 48. In terms of chair of the, let me just do this. Okay, in terms of, what did I do now? Sorry, chair, I just moved something here that is taking me to another slide. There we go. There we go. All right. In terms of um, the speaker's view, on the, on the bill, basically those who are supporting or not supporting or who didn't indicate. We have the majority of 74% of people who um, said they're in support of the bill in terms of numbers, that is 388. We had 9% of uh, people who rejected the bill, which is like in terms of numbers 46. 
And then we had 17% of people who did not indicate. Let me just explain, Chair, that the majority of the participants uh, or those who made oral submissions who did not support the bill in its current form was the organization that is the, called Fathers for Justice organization. They said they did not sub, uh, um, uh, support the bill in its current form. However, they supported the public hearing process. We also had a number of speakers from the ECD sector uh, in the free state who also uh, rejected the bill based on the submissions that they made. I just thought I should highlight that chapter. Okay, moving on um, from the statistical analysis, now to go into the crux of the matter, the main submissions that were made in terms of the content. Um, in terms of the definitions, as it's also part of the bill, what was the people's view on it? Well, there was a submission, people who are from the disability sector, they uh, supported the inclusion of children with disability in the amendment in clause 45A1. And then with regards to section 21 of the bill, uh, the participants or the, the speakers, they raise a concern about the use of a reasonable period that is not defined. That is from, uh, mainly the, that, that section deals with um, a father who has to acquire the parental rights and responsibilities if that father has been contributing or has attempted to contribute to the bringing of the child uh, for a reasonable period. So their fathers, they felt that that is not clearly defined. What is this reasonable period? And one even raised a question, would it be the five days after 30 days where they are allowed to have access to the child? Would that be considered as, as reasonable? That was a question that was asked. And then in clause 12, um, that is amending section 22 by inserting paragraph 2A and uh, in terms of section 129 of the Act, there is a use of sufficient maturity. So even then, Chairperson, the, 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 the inputs or the, 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 the concerns was that um, the sufficient maturity is not defined. So basically, these are the two um, uh, phrases or concepts that are used that the public felt that they were not clearly defined. Okay, Chair, just to go now to the 3.2, which uh, speaks to the uh, registration of children. There was a lot of um, input on this one, and all of them were premised on this clause that is um, clause five of the bill that seeks to amend section eight, which clarifies that this act applies to every child in the Republic of South Africa. So and even with those that clause section that session what we had with those children, they particularly highlighted this fact that the, 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 the bill aims to specify or clarify who this act is, uh, is applicable to. So having said that, Chair, now these are the concerns that we raised, that there are children in South Africa, both from born in South Africa and those who are non-South African who are not documented. And because of that, these children are not able to uh, uh, to enjoy the benefits, uh, government benefits, such as the social grants, they can't get uh, um, uh, paid social grants. And because these children cannot be 
admitted at HCD centers, even though some uh, ECD managers, they say they do admit these children for the in keeping with the principle of the best, best interest of the child. So they, they, they admit these children. These children are enrolled in school as well, but when it comes to them sitting for metric examinations, they cannot because they don't have proper documents. And the reasons given for that, some of the uh, 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 reasons given by the public was that the regulations or policy of the Department of Home Affairs um, it does not allow unmarried fathers to register their children. So if a child now stays with the father, that child now, now is not registered. So that child won't have the proper documentation that the child needs because the law doesn't allow fathers to register their children on their own, or they must uh, undergo paternity tests, which I'm going to talk to, uh, to it later. As well as families who are looking after children whose parents are not known or their whereabouts are not known, or maybe the parents are deceased or one parent is deceased, those children cannot be registered as well um, because of that. And also that the fact that home affairs is not accessible, um, the offices are in town, people have to travel and spend money and they travel more than once in some instances because they're saying that the, the offices are quite inefficient, the systems are always down, and there's always long queues. So that now impacts on the registration of children. So what were the recommendations made? That government should make sure that all undocumented children are documented because they were born in South Africa. The Department of Social Development and the Department of Home Affairs should work together to review and reconsider this matter in the best interest of the child. The bill should also provide a legal remedy to, to the challenge of registration of children born either from a non-South African mother or father. So meaning one parent is South African and the other one is not. This should be aligned with section 21 and 22 of the Children's Act, number 38 of 2005. Now, Chairperson, just going to the next part, which is now parental responsibilities and rights. I'm just going through all the slides quickly because there are quite a number of them. Uh, on this aspect, uh, the, the inputs were, were, if I were to um, categorize them, were those people who were more arguing for a, like a traditional perspective on the matter. And when you have those who were basically uh, fighting for the full parental rights of the fathers. However, in both instances, the 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 the, the the, the, the participants were in support of the of the of the bill. However, I just want to note, as I said earlier, the Fathers for Justice they made a submission that they reject the bill in its current form. It does a repetition. Now, Chair, for emphasis. So, Chair, now going to the traditional perspective on the on on this uh, on the bill. The mainly it was like, uh, like for the traditional house um, traditional leaders, if I can put it that way, who had. This, uh, those um, inputs that the bill should consider the cultural and customer practices that unmarried fathers need to fulfill, such as the payment of damages for impregnating a woman, and a child who is born out of wedlock belongs to the maternal family. Therefore, the unmarried fathers have limited parental rights to a child born out of wedlock. In essence, that was their, their, their input share, that, that there should be a balance and a recognition of the cultural practices that an unmarried father needs to fulfill 
before uh, he can have um, full parental responsibilities and rights. On the other hand, Chair, you have um, those who are more into fathers having their full access to their children, and their inputs were uh, quite a number of them, but I just uh, highlighted the key ones, uh, that the bill is um, discriminatory in its nature because it, it's more biased towards unmarried mothers than it is to unmarried fathers, and also in the sense that it categorizes a man as either you are married or unmarried father. So they felt it is discriminatory in that sense. And also the fact that as unmarried fathers, they have to undergo expensive uh, DNA or paternity test when they want to apply for the registration of their children, which many of them they cannot afford because they're either not working or it is just simply too expensive for them. And then that some fathers are denied access to their children, even though they support them financially. At times they're excluded, which I think that's also an important aspect from decision-making that involves their children. For example, when the mother wants to change the surname of the child, now the mother is marrying another man and wants to change the surname of the child to that other man, the biological father felt that they are not consulted in that uh, decision-making, even though they are involved in the, as, as, as far as the maintenance of the child, the financial support for the child. And also in the same breath that they emphasize that the financial support should be not uh, be the only uh, recognized form of support for from unmarried fathers to their children. The, the fathers, they need to be present in the upbringing of their children, and that is very crucial in the child development. So it should not be reduced only to the financial support, the role of fathers. There were also um, some criticism on the judiciary chair that the magistrates and the family advocates, the South African police service and social workers are being uh, biased against biological fathers when they consider cases of uh, custody, divorce or separation, and that family advocates or divorce courts were allegedly using divorce and custody processes for self-enrichment and at the expense of the child. Sorry, typing error there, at the expense of the child. So they use this process for financial gains, in a sense, that's what the document was saying. Okay, and um, the parental alienation was raised quite a number of times, was quite, quite emphasized, especially the Fathers for Justice, that all this discrimination or uh, biasness against uh, biological fathers is a form of parental alienation, and they were strongly advised that it must be treated as a form of abuse to the child. That was their submission chair. And also submission that in section 22B, it stipulates that parental responsibilities and rights should be registered with the family advocate and substitute reference to the divorce court, regional court. So people saying sometimes the courts are not accessible. So that um, kind of cases should be dealt with at regional court. That was the admission term. And then also that section 22 of the act now does not address potential abuse of a child's rights in instances where a child is forced to stay with his or her mother, in, even if the child is not in agreement. So what were the recommendations? Okay, I just want to highlight that there were quite a number of recommendations that were made. I think members, if we had 
we had time to go through the, 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 the report. There's quite a long list, and I didn't want to put everything here for the sake of time. And others were close specific. So I'm not going to go through those chapters in there. They're in the report, and they're also in that in the report from the national hearings. But just have to highlight this one's chair. The bill should prohibit should prohibit changing of surnames of children without the consent of the biological father. The law should make it possible for children to make decisions for themselves at the age of 18. Paternity tests should be done at no cost for those who cannot afford. The judiciary and the family advocates should consider meritocracy when deciding on PR parental rights and responsibility cases. Basically, must be, the cases must be considered based on merit. And it was recommended that equal parental responsibilities be granted to both the mother and the father for the best interest of the child. And that chaired the principle of 50-50 parenting was strongly raised uh, that it should be considered and actually the bill should make provision on that. That was the recommendation made. And that there must be equal access to the child even if the father is unable to pay the maintenance support for the child. The bill should protect the rights of children and, and both parents. The focus should be on building families and not breaking them. There should be training of social workers, family advocates, and police on how to interpret amendments to Section 21 and 22 of the bill once it has been enacted. Maybe just to, to mention, Chair, there was, uh, when we were in the West, West, West Coast, there was a submission made by a private social worker that uh, as private social workers, they, they are not um, that much recognized their role, even though they, are, they, quite, they play quite a significant role in assisting even uh, state social workers in drafting these parental responsibilities and rights. So they felt like the social workers, they don't have um, uh, enough or correct interpretation of those provisions. So the, admin, the, the submission was that there should be training that is given to these uh, professionals so as to know how to go about in drafting those uh, um, parental responsibilities and rights. But also the, the question of recognition of the private social workers was also emphasized in that submission chart. Okay, I've already alluded to the fact that these rights, the parental responsibilities and rights agreements should be handled by the regional courts. <laughs> Okay, section 21C should be explicit and include that the biological father must automatically acquire parental responsibilities and rights with regard to physical, emotional, and psychological needs of the child. Section 19 should be incorporated under section 18 of the Act, which provides that a person, including unmarried father, may be a holder of full or specific parental rights and responsibilities of the child. The bill should declare a parental alienation as another form of abuse, uh, and they felt that the Children's Act is the best uh, legislation to, um, to, to include that. Okay, then also in terms of the, um, uh, the, the submission that was made that the legal fraternity uses the cases to uh, self-enrichment, that legal fees should be reduced for the best interest of the child. And that in sections 21 and section 33.1, there should be mandatory mediation post-divorce processes, particularly in cases where one parent does not comply with the terms of the, I'll refer that to the PPRs, which is parental responsibilities and rights. So there must be post-divorce processes to make sure that there's compliance. 
Moving now, Chair, to children's rights to privacy. Excuse me. Uh, on this aspect, as it was uh, mentioned earlier, the, the parents, they felt that the, the, the law protects the children more than it, it does for the parents, and especially when it comes to the protection of the child and disciplining of the child. And they felt that if the, the children are given more rights, even though there's a risk you know, of them being exposed to harmful content and bullying uh, in media or in social media platforms. And then an example was made of, um, oh, the name just escapes now, the child who committed suicide because of uh, bullying in the, cyber, in, in the media space, that the children still need protection from their, from their parents. So the children's rights to privacy should be balanced between the protection of the child and the, 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 the rights of parenting as well, which uh, on, uh, Professor Skelton also dealt with it. Okay, um, I think that just sums it up. This, I just spoke to this uh, slide, Chairperson, so I can go to the next one. And the issue of corporate punishment was also raised that even though it was supported, um, it was submitted that there should be mechanisms to instill discipline and guidance to the children, particularly with the increasing abuse of alcohol by children. So in other words, um, the, 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 the public was saying they, as parents, they also need some kind of support in terms of how to parent their children. I think the same um, uh, point was raised by the by the children's, the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund representatives there, they actually called for um, training or programs for parents to for positive parenting that they need to be given to parents. So they actually um, recommended that there should be those kind of programs uh, made available for parents. Okay, um, the recommendations that the government should protect both children and parents' rights. And I just spoke into the issue, Chairperson, of training and positive disciplining of children that was raised as uh, something that needs to be considered. And that the bill should further provide a platform to, for children to be allowed to be part of the decision making on matters affecting their lives. That came out very strong from the, uh, the close session with children from the Children's, Mandela Children's Fund. Uh, Chair, like I said, can I maybe um, skip this uh, few slides because they speak to what the committee had already discussed um, in the morning about the issue of age. I will just proceed, Chair. I hope I'm in order. Okay. Okay. The issue of child marriages. Um, it was the amendments were were actually uh, supported, fully supported by the by the by the public. However, it was emphasised that the bill should clearly define the age restriction um, where the the provision of marriage uh, should be. And uh, I just thought, your President, was a, a quite an interesting link that was made between uh, child marriages the high teenage pregnancy rate and the cultural practice of payment of uh, damages or intraulo, in the sense that uh, when a, 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 a girl child uh, is uh, pregnant and then there's a damages that is paid, there's now always an expect expectation that is created that this child um, will be regarded as married or in the sense that the child will start uh, doing some wife duties like it was said. So. 
the 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 input was that when with this high teenage pregnancy rate, and then we have what is now has to be done culturally that the man or the boy or the family of the of the boy child now needs to go and pay damages. When that happens, then it creates this environment that the child will be regarded as a wife. Hence, now may have a child marriage in that instance. So that mass link was um, was made between these two uh, between these three uh, instances. The other one, Chaperson, that is also uh, linked to the high teenage pregnancy. Another view was that the provision prohibition of child marriages may indirectly promote a fatherless society or absent fathers, uh, in considering the rate of high teenage pregnancy what we have right now. And so it was argued that child marriages, if that uh, child marriages should not be prohibited if children wish to get married. Otherwise, the probabilities of the father not being fully present in the child's lives are very high if they are not married. So another link of child marriages with the teenage pregnancy as well, a bit of a different uh, view on it. Uh, in terms of then the, the recommendations that were made, the bill should also prohibit statutory rape and relationships of older men with minors. Okay, that was also raised Chairperson, as a big issue that um, these children are being impregnated by older men. So hence the, the, the recommendation that there must be a, a, a prohibition, which I think there is already other laws, but it was raised here, so I must report on it. Uh, it's also the bill in this instance is silent about older men who cohabitate with younger girls. And there should be a minimum wage of consent to a marriage, and that the different laws that regulate age of consent in South Africa be reviewed. We, we touched on that earlier, Chairperson with Professor Skelton. And the amendment bill should allow child marriages, um, child marrying another child, only for the child who has consented to that marriage. So that's the same view that I just spoke to earlier that says, if we prohibit it in its entirety, child marriages to lead to fatherless um, children. So children should be allowed to marry at the age of 16. And if not, the law must prohibit children under 18 years not to fall pregnant or engage in sexual acts. That's now in line with that view that I just alluded to. That all policies and traditional or cultural practices that promote child marriages should be banned in line with the new insertion of clause six. So this one basically um, it supports the amendment that is made by the bill to prohibit child marriage. Okay, going through the ECD related issues, Chair, there are quite a number of them. Maybe I should just say here uh, up front, Chair, the, the recommendations that were made were quite long. Uh, so for the sake of this presentation, not to make it too long, already it is 48 slides. I didn't include them, but they are there, Jefferson, the consolidated uh, report. They are also there in the individual provincial reports. So I'm just gonna highlight the issues that were raised. One was that came out very strong was the issue of funding, that there are children who are not funded. Uh, the ECD uh, managers, they made cases where they will uh, make an application for funding for a certain number of children, but say they applied for 60, but they'll only get funding for 30 children. And we have these other children now who are not funding, who are not funded, and that makes it difficult then for the, 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 the practitioners or the managers to, to cater for those children. 
Also, the lack of funding, it makes it difficult for the centers to comply with norms and standards, and also with the COVID-19 regulations. And also the issue of the non-payment of the presidential ECD stimulus relief was also raised quite uh, sharply that they had not received the, 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 the relief that, was, that they had applied for. Also that the means tests to qualify for ECT subsidy, it creates unequal treatment for children. That was also raised as an issue in terms of the, uh, as far as funding is concerned. And also there was uh, uh, concerns and complaints from the ECD practitioners that their payments of stipends um, are very delayed and are inconsistent and they may be delayed up to three months and the dates are not the same. One month they'll be paying on a certain date and then the coming month they'll be paying on a different date. And they were really concerned about that, that they, they are not able to meet their personal expenses or needs because of, of this. So they really uh, made a, a plea for this to be considered. And then there was also um, issue of the lack of support from the Department of Social Development that would include EC, the, the social uh, workers. Uh, in the main, the ECT practitioners, they felt that they're not respected, they're not recognized, and the, the department takes decisions without consulting the sector. And also there's a lack of training of ECT practitioners. So in general, they, they felt they play a critical role in the uh, development of children at the foundation level, but even so, they are not given the, uh, the respect and the recognition they deserve. That was their main issue, Chairperson. And in so doing, then the, the bill that felt focuses more on children's rights and services than it, it does on the uh, ECT practitioners or managers for that matter. The issue of migration was also raised. Uh, most practitioners, they welcomed it. They were quite op optimistic about it because they saw it as a, a move that will address the, the, the challenges that they have, especially in terms of the curriculum and other issues they have. Uh, however, their main concern was that there was a lot of confusion and uncertainties because there was a, a lack of proper consultation and communication with the sector. For to highlight uh, just a future, the job security of the ECT practitioners, they were worried about that, what will happen when they are now absorbed under uh, DBE. The issue of the elderly um, ECT managers who had been running the centers for many years, what will happen to them, and all other uh, issues pertaining to their security in terms of uh, their centers and their employment were raised, Chairperson. Um, and all of that because they felt that they were never consulted properly uh, on this migration. And the issue of the registration of partial care, that including the ECGs, um, the, the, this was also raised at the national platform that we had of public hearings, that the process is quite tedious, it is oppressive, and is quite lengthy. And also that the sub documents that they need to, to submit, for example, the business plans are quite expensive to draft, as well as the renewal of the compliance certificates uh, or health compliance certificates, it's quite lengthy and, and it's costly as well. And all of these, the, some in, um, uh, speakers, they felt it creates a divide between the urban and the rural um, uh, ECT centers because uh, rural areas most have the infrastructure and resources they need than those that maybe are in the more urban areas. 
The role of municipalities, Jefferson has also came out very strong. Uh, the lack of support from the municipalities in so doing, they are failing to implement um, their the legislative mandate as far as support that needs to be given to the sector. And also that uh, that came out very strong in Houghton in terms of uh, with regard to the municipalities charging very exorbitant amounts for the bylaws and the zoning of land that they cannot, uh, they can't afford. And um, um, one one lady mentioned that uh, even the municipal bills were quite expensive. That um, in one instance, I think her one was about forty thousand rand. Uh, that a municipal uh, bill that was charged for a center, and uh, she obviously could not be uh, cannot be able to pay for that one. So that was raised as a big um, concern. And just to mention here, the the the, the recommendation was that. The ECT sector or the centers, they must also uh, be regarded as indigent. So the indigent policy should also be applicable to the ECT sector. That's what was raised, which I thought was interesting to raise here. Another issue that was raised, which was quite um, um, uh, concerning uh, from the public, that is, that parents they will take their children to school who are as young as three to four years old or four to five. And um, they felt like the parents do that because at the centers, city centers, they need to pay a fees. Whereas if they go to those schools that are exempted, that uh, they don't have to pay a school fees, then the parent would rather than take the child to the school than to the center where the, the, the parent would be expected to pay fees. So you have these three to four-year-olds and four to five-year-olds who are now enrolled in mainstream schools. And the concern was that these children, they find it very difficult to adapt to the curriculum because they are young and the school environment. And because they are not yet uh, ready to be in that environment, others are still in the lapis. It was also alluded to that. And in terms of potty training as well, they're not well potty trained. They then tend to be uh, bullied or, or, or laughed at at school and that affects their self-esteem. And also the fact that the schooling system does not have aftercare. So these children after school, they have nowhere to go. Uh, because they they may have to go home, but there won't be any supervision that way because the parents are at work. So these children are left now on their own, not being attended to. Also, children with disabilities, um, that uh, it was uh, um, one of the areas that were raised. The inclusion of children with disabilities in definition of ECD was supported, as I said earlier. However, there was a general concern of discrimination, bullying, and ridiculing of children with disabilities in school. And also ECT centers and other public buildings do not have appropriate infrastructure or, uh, for children with disabilities. And the ECT sector, they also submitted that they do not have a curriculum or support in terms of training on how to now work with children with disabilities. Well, that was raised. Um, like I said, Chair, in terms of recommendations, um, uh, uh, that that one, Chairperson, they are in the reports. Uh, just to mention that a specific mention was made of children with autism and albinism who are ill-treated, abused, and discriminated against. 
particularly uh, uh, this one speaker mentioned that children with autism, they have a wide spectrum of um, symptoms that they, 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 they have with autism. And because of that, they require a specialized skill and they, they, then they find it hard to integrate into the society and also into the school. So they felt that um, that needs to be taken into consideration when now the children with disabilities are being now um, included in the ECD program. Uh, also, the issue of uh, schools for children with special needs not being enough. And those existing ones, they have long to waiting list for, for parents to enroll their children. So you find most children, they end up not being in school because they're in the, the waiting list is too long in schools. And on top of that, we don't have enough schools um, in South Africa for children with learning uh, with special needs. Um, most children with disabilities are forced to exit special schools when they reach the age of 18. I think chair is something similar to um, the issue of children exiting the foster care. Uh, in this instance, is those children who are in the special schools that also have to leave the schools at the age of 18. Okay, coming to foster care, and that is including grants. Um, the main concerns that were raised was that the application process and the renewal of court orders takes too long. I think the committee is quite uh, well aware of that. And the fact that children who turn 18, I have to exit the system and they're left with no support, even the financial support and protection. And one case was made of a child who had to live on the street in the bushes somewhere because that child had nowhere to go after exiting the foster care system. Uh, that the foster care grant and the child support grant are often abused by parents and caregivers. We, the committee uh, was told a lot for a number of cases where parents use the money for their own personal use, uh, gambling, buying cell phones, buying alcohol, going to the taverns and neglecting the needs of, of, of children um, because uh, many of these parents are young parents. If we can consider in the context of the high teenage pregnancy, so you have these young parents who receive the child support grant, and instead of using that grant for the for the interest of the child or benefit of the child, they use it for their own personal use. That was raised uh, by a lot of parents, chair. And there's also a lack of protection of children or adopted or foster children or adopted children when the uh, parents die. Uh, we learned a lot of children who, when the parents who adopted them uh, die, those children uh, do not have protection from the, uh, the remaining members of the family. Uh, and also the fact that grandparents or family members who do not know the whereabouts of the parents are not able to apply for foster care grant. Okay, the recommendations was that the termination of foster care grant and foster care as a, uh, those children, for example, in the foster care homes, for children above the age of 18 should be reviewed to 21 years or 25 years, depending on the circumstances of the child. Social workers should constantly monitor children receiving foster care grants to determine whether their grant is used for intended purposes and prevent abuse and neglect of children. There should be education programs about foster care and adoption to the general public as there is a general lack of understanding about them. Hence, 
Chairperson earlier alluded to the fact that these children, when the parents are no more, they tend to be rejected by the remaining members of the family. Uh, interesting recommendation was made that um, when the screening process is done for foster care and adoption, it should not only be limited to the, to the parents, uh, the, the adoptive parents, it should also be extended to the immediate family members to avoid uh, children being exposed uh, to um, harmful um, things that can be done to them. Or like I said, some of them end up being rejected by families. So one, mem one uh, speaker mentioned that you may find out that another member of the immediate family was not screened. Maybe that person has a criminal record, but that was never um, taken into consideration when the child was placed. So hence, it must be extended to the all uh, immediate family members. Yeah. Okay, when it comes to adoptions, okay, the issue of uh, deletion of section 249, which the committee is quite well aware of, um, was sharply raised during the national hearings. Uh, it was raised that it could have unintended consequences, which may have negative effect on the system as a whole, and it will apply, it may allow for potential exploitation of mothers and children. And that many of the adoption accredited designated child protection organizations and private adoption social workers will no longer be able to cover the inherent cost of the program if this uh, section is. Uh, 249 is deleted, and also it could lead to further decline in the adoption uh, targets. And that uh, focus should instead be on addressing delays in the administrative processes from provincial departments in issuing of Section 2391C, which is the issuing of the letters of recommendation that they the, the are needed uh, for the adoption processes to be um, finalized. Uh, adoption is a highly specialized skill, and oh, sorry, adoption is highly specialized and complex, and so it must be handled by trained and experienced uh, professional social workers. And as it is now, the the concern was that DSD already has associates of social workers, so um, this was raised as a concern that if now the 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 the, the those who are specialized in the field are being um, maybe uh, taken off from this process, then may cause a problem in the adoption service. And then this is a technical uh, input chair that there is a consistency of the use of adoption social worker as it is defined currently in the act. The proposed amendments, the only uh, to 239 and 252, they refer to social worker responsible for adoption, whereas the act talks about adoption social workers. So say, there's that inconsistency chair. So what are the recommendations? So in order for the bill to be consistent and avoid confusion, confusion, it should refer to adoption social worker employed by the department as it is currently defined in the act. Parliament should keep section 249 and regulation 107 as part of the legislation and to rather take measures to simplify the adoption process. Section 239D of the Act should be amended to give timeframes of the issuance of the recommendation letter by provincial DSD. <coughs> okay, and also that uh, associating legal adoption with child trafficking should be stopped. Rather, more support should be given to accredited social adoption service providers in open, 
transparent and legally legally adopt legally adoption legally guided adoption processes taking too long and also there should be penalties for anyone rendering adoption services without accreditation and registration with the department and then adoption should be regarded as a specialized service i'm almost i'm almost done chair um 3.10 it uh, talks to the referral of a child uh, to a place of safety or in safe care. There was a, a concern raised that there is a confusion regarding provisions of clause 83 and clause 87. Clause 83, clause 83 states that a social worker must investigate the matter of a child and within 90 days compile a report on whether the child is in need of care and protection. However, clause 87 states that the child should not be in a temporary safe care for longer than 72 hours without a court order. So the, the social workers who raised this, they felt like they, they, this creates confusion because in one clause, it talks about 90 days, and then the other one, it talks about 72 hours of a child who is now needs to be assessed and have a court order to be placed in a temporary safe care, which I think the department will um, respond to that. And also that there's a lack of clarity in the bill on instances when the prescribed time lapses before a child is placed in the temporary safe care. Some cases are reported during the weekend or long weekends when some services are not available that are needed in terms of the investigating or investigations of the matter. So there is no clarity to what happens when the prescribed time lapses and the child has not yet been placed on temporary safe care. And the recommendations, the proposed period of 72 hours should be extended to five working days. The six months period proposed in amending section 87 is too short. The period should be extended to a year. The process of placing a child in temporary safe care should be handled by the Department of Justice and Constitutional Court, uh, Constitutional Development timelessly. Um, the National Child Protection Register, the Part B, uh, this was also raised in the national hearings that it takes long for um, applications to get an outcome on the application of the screening process, and it can take up to three months. And some uh, the ECD sector they even raised that they will need to employ a person, but they now delayed because of the delays in the uh, in terms of getting feedback on the application, and in some instances they end up employing that particular person. And uh, just so I stated that the, it take, they said it takes up to three months, even though the act it says the feedback must be provided within 21 days. So you can see that there's a, uh, quite a lot of delay uh, divergence is also from the, from, the, from the act. So the recommendation was that the register should be devolved to provincial departments of social development, um, that, that that way then it would be able to be fast track the issue of application and outcome. And also that the register should be linked to the South African Police Service Criminal Register, as this register contains detailed information about the person, like the, like I said, the criminal register, so it has more detail about the person than the National Child Protection Register. Um, almost done, I'm left with only two slides. Um, 
there is, in terms of the implementation and nature of the bill, there was an input that was made that there's a lack of proper monitoring of the act and its regulations. And so there are people who are not well informed about its provision. I think it also speaks to what I said earlier about the um, interpretation of the section that deals with drafting of the uh, parental responsibilities and rights agreements. Uh, Chairperson, there's one input that was made concerning the, 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 the bill itself, uh, that um, they felt like the bill is in its current form is unconstitutional and should be uh, withdrawn. Just to give a bit of a summary on this one, the speaker alluded that the, a, submission, a petition was submitted to parliament and this petition had a, a thousands of uh, signatories and they were um, calling for the, the, the bill uh, to be withdrawn by parliament because it is unconstitutional. Chairperson, uh, we made a follow-up uh, uh, later on uh, on this uh, submission and we found out that this petition was never referred to the committee. Uh, so as far as the committee is, is concerned, it never received this petition. So we can't really uh, make uh, comments on it because it was never referred to it. That's so how far it goes as far as the committee is concerned, Chair. Um, there's a new proposal, Chairperson. It's not new in the sense of um, to the committee uh, because it was also written as a national uh, platform as well, but it's new in terms of it's a new uh, proposal to be inserted in the bill because the bill does not address this. So this proposal, Chairperson, is basically uh, a way that it tries to protect uh, children who are abandoned. Um, so with the, 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 the argument is that South Africa has a high number of children who are abandoned in unsafe places. This is because uh, the, the law in South Africa right now makes it a criminal offense to abandon a child. So you have these mothers who then uh, abandon their, their children in rubbish bins, all these unsafe places. So the aim of the safe havens or baby savers then protect and save lives of these children in their, for the, the best, in keeping with the principle of the best interest of the child. So the, 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 this submission then or the proposal calls for South Africa to legalize uh, safe abandonment through the safe havens or baby savers. Uh, the recommendations here is that uh, there should be uh, uh, adoptions should prioritize children who are abandoned. Um, the bill should regulate that all organizations working with babies should partner with DSD and failure to cooperate with the department will result to closure of the organization. Make it um, make the anonymous safe relinquishment of children legal. Basically, the um, abandonment of children be legal, so that abandoned children can be cared for appropriately and their lives saved. And then start being accountable by keeping accurate statistics of child abandonment, abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Okay, I'm done, Chair. Just to say, um, the committee has um, um, a wealth of information, primary information before it that came from the provincial public hearings and the national public hearings. Um, that, uh, in essence, um, the both platforms, the issues that are raised are quite similar. They may vary in detail, but the 
crux of the matter that we raised are quite uh, uh, similar. So it is then crucial that the committee going forward, it considers all these reports that are before it, the report on the summaries that was provided, I made a presentation on it. There was a report on the national public hearings that um, I also um, presented on it to the committee. There's this report now on the provincial hearings. All of these reports, they contain quite crucial information for the committee to deliberate on. I thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Loyoli. Uh, it was not easy to make this summary because it took some months and months and you have tried to collect everything. I could see that it's a long, um, long to try to, uh, to summarize it. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that. And when I listen to you, I think you have tried to cover most of other things, but let me give over to honorable members to check whether is there anything that needs to be added on the presentation. Yes, Chair. Uh, yes. I see. Honorable members, I think so is my head. Honorable Abrams and Honorable Mangani. Can you go to Honorable Aris? Yeah, thank you very much, Chair. Chair, I just want to check there was an issue raised in terms of social <laughs> that fathers that are part of the children's life, you know, as from the day one. And um, then there was this guy, I don't know in which place we were. I'm not sure if it was one of the last provinces that we visited, because he did raise that issue of social fathers. Um, that That is the fathers that are there in the children's lives right from day one, physically, emotionally, financially is there, and where the biological father is absent. And that that person, that are the father figure, that children's life, you know, you don't have any rights. Maybe I have missed it, and maybe Yoli did cover that one. I'm not so sure, but that one was definitely raised in, in, the, in the public hearings. And how will we cover, you know, those uh, people? Uh, Abrams. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you to Yoli and everybody who... Um, assisted in drafting the report. Um, Chair, just excuse my ignorance, um, adopting the report today does not mean we all necessarily agree to the recommendations today. Am I, I correct? Yours, uh, what are you saying, I beg yours? I, I, I said, excuse my ignorance, but I just would like to confirm by adopting the report, if we adopt the report today, it's not necessary, meaning we're adopting all the recommendations. Or by adopting no. it, are we, are we agreeing to all the recommendations today? Yes, I think so. Because oh. look, the recommendation has been put there. 
okay. if you want to add one of other that has been left, we can add. If we want to delete one of the recommendations that have been put there, we can do that. Okay. So it's our opportunity so as to adopt uh, okay. uh, the report as a whole. Okay, thank okay. you. Okay. Wait, wait, then, then, then I have questions if, if that's in the case. And then I just would like to find out um, in terms of the statistical analysis, um, are our numbers acceptable to Parliament to proceed, noting that it was COVID and we did have um, COVID regulations in place that limited, um, you know, spacing and could have also limited the number of attendees. So are we on par and is the, our numbers acceptable um, to proceed. Then I'd also like to just confirm with regard to the ECD section, will this committee be making any changes or will we be sticking to our previous recommendation that all ECD changes will then um, be handed over to DBE and they will do all the ECD changes in the second amendment bill? So those are two questions. Um, then coming now to the recommendations. I know on slide 18, the one recommendation was um, to then regulate legal fees when it comes to um, parents, um, um, you know, and divorce cases and getting access to their children. But couldn't the legal fraternity just argue then that if parents don't want to accept their fees, then they should use other methods such as um, legal aid and then to find a lawyer that is more in line with their financial standing than to regulate the entire um, legal fraternity in that. Then also um, on the issue of um, um, child marriages and by not allowing child marriages, it leads to fatherlessness. I think we should just be careful while it did come up in the discussion and therefore the comments need to be noted in the discussion. I'm of the opinion that that should not then recommend that link between not allowing child marriages equaling fatherlessness should not. Um, oh, Yuli, yeah. Should I stop? No, continue. Uh, Yuli's got a hand up. I think she wants to just stop me or something. Yes, can no. I Can I really please? Uh, I think why don't you? Mm. No, okay, maybe I should wait. I don't know, but maybe Mrs. Linda can assist me, Chair. Uh, but the, the process of uh, committee deliberating on the inputs is still coming, Chair. And mm. the fact that the departments are still going to come and respond to the recommendations, for example, that were raised and all the inputs that were raised. So. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe it may be premature now to engage on that until we have the department that will respond to it and then the committee may deliberate then on what was raised. Okay. I thought maybe I should keep, uh, make you aware of that. Okay, yes, let's just have all the questions people that are having and then you can summarize by answering all of them. But it's fine for this one you are done. Okay, well, well then Can she, you continue, I'll, I'll continue, but then maybe just to note it that, I mean, there are people in marriages and it can still lead to, to fatherlessness. So I don't think that association um, should be made um, in the recommendation. And then also, Chair, I'm very happy to see that you are going to include, well, hopefully include 
the baby safe um, havens. And then just to mention, I'm busy reading a dissertation called The Legal Regulation of Infant Aban Abandonment in, S in South Africa, um, which would be very um, constructive to that discussion. Um, and then lastly, or second lastly, Chair, on the issue of um, the exit age, exit age from foster care and exit age, especially from child and youth care centres. Now, children over the age of 18 does not fall within the mandate of social development, but we do have a department that focuses on youth and it would be just very interesting to hear what that department is doing um, to protect these 18-year-olds um, once they exit out of these systems. And then just lastly, Chair, it goes without saying, but I think I must just, I feel that I just need to say it um, because every morning we wake up and there's another woman and child murdered in this country that, you know, automatic access um, by fathers is for the rights and responsibilities part. But, you know, then it becomes access to the child. And, you know, I think the discussion with most of those fathers is that while they may have the rights and responsibilities, they don't have access to the child. And that should we should maybe look at, it at, at you know, um, access and the rights and responsibilities. But also if the mother has um, protection orders in place, if any of the parent appears on um, child protection registers, et cetera, you know, that access and that automatic access will, of course, need to be determined by the court. So it goes without saying, but, you know, we live in a country where every morning you wake up and I just feel it needs to be said again. But thank you, um, Chairperson and Yoli. Okay, thank you, Honorable Abrams, Honorable Mangani, and thank you, Mr. thank you very much, Chair, and thank you very much, uh, Yoli. Mine is just to check uh, when we were in free state, there were the social workers says I didn't get it clear on this report. Uh, I'm not debating, but I want to check if we have captured it uh, 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 very good. The one of the social workers saying they are having the memorandum of understanding as the province of uh, Free State. They're having the memorandum of understanding with the ambassador of Lesotho. So as the so that the children should get documentation. I'm just checking if uh, maybe we'll discuss it when we discuss the report. I'm just checking if that was my understanding. If that is was my understanding, it means we are going to have a province that is doing its own thing, even if it's not uh, recommended by the, uh, the, the, the government that you can do whatever documentation with the ambassadors, while others countries that we are, uh, we are, they are saying they don't have documentation, their ambassadors are, are not given that latitude maybe to can contact their ambassador to assist them. I was just thinking if that is um, uh, legal. Thank you. Okay. 
Thank you, Honorable Mangani. Then can we follow uh, by Honorable uh, Kate and Honorable Masango, followed by Honorable Stock. Honorable thank, thank, Kate. Thank you, Chair. And thank you very much for the presentation or the report crafted by uh, our content advisor and the uh, and the collective chair. I also heard the content advisor saying can't, that can't we wait for for the department in order to raise this question with them? But uh, one one thing that I think it uh, needs here to clarify is that one of the petition i can't remember whether it's on slide number 46 or 45 where she said that there was a petition that has been sent to parliament but it didn't reach the portfolio committee i want to check if there is no consequences concerning that since there is an allegation that there is this uh, petition that has been signed off by so many people sent to parliament in order to stop this bill. And on our side, we didn't receive the petition. What is it that we can do all? Are we not going to find ourselves having a problem without acting or responding to, to that petition? And I'm not so sure now, Chair, if I can proceed in asking questions or I must wait for the department to present then we raise some of the issues because I think it's more related to the department. Okay, comrades Masango. I am not comrade Masango. <laughs> and um, thank you so much, Chairperson, for this opportunity. And thank you very much to um, Yolisa, Yolisa and the and the colleagues that have her colleagues that have assisted in putting this report together. Chair, I I had questions, but after the question of Honourable Abrahams and the response by um, Yoli, <clears throat> I sort of changed my mind because I need clarity. My understanding was that today's meeting, or, or at least this, this part of the meeting, is here, is, is for your lead to present to us the deliberations of the public hearings, because we were there at, at different times. And then for us to say today, we agree, it's like minutes of meetings, pretty much for us to agree that we believe that having listened to the presentation in conjunction with reading the, the, the reports that she has sent, uh, that the, the committee um, um, support have sent us, we agree that it reflects, it is a reflection of what happened during the public hearings. And that would be the basis of us adopting or not adopting the report. And then any other information that in the intervening time we have gathered or we have ourselves just, you know, thought about and things like that, we still 
during this process of the processing of during the processing of the bill, we still have the opportunity uh, of of proffering that information and 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 as we interact with the people that drafted the bill. So. Uh, now I'm not going to go into questions because I need that, if if possible, Chair, if you agree, I need at least my 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 uh, view to be uh, confirmed or not. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Another thank you. Thank you very much, Honourable Chairperson. Uh, I don't have a question necessarily which I want to pose uh, uh, with regard to the report that was presented by the content advisor, Oyoliswa. But I think I need to preface my submission in this manner also, just to start by appreciating joining my colleagues uh, the comprehensive report which was presented by Oyoliswa, uh, which of course led the team that was working with her to compile the report. Now, I was I'm actually partly covered by Honorable Masango uh, based on the approach and the manner in which or the objective of today's meeting. And I want to put it in the meeting, Honorable Chair, that I might be wrong uh, also in terms of my understanding, but I stand to be corrected. Uh, today's meeting, based on the report, was just supposed for us, like Honorable Masango is putting it. Uh, the report presented by the content advisor to us is more like this is what happened in the public hearings. Do you agree or you don't agree? So if we say yes, we agree as honorable members, this is a true reflection. The report reflects our activity as a portfolio committee in those provinces as part of the public hearings. Uh, then, of course, we need to adopt the report. And then once the report is duly adopted, we'll have our time or an opportunity as honorable members in the next meeting where the report will be tabled or maybe any other opportunity will be given to us we will now be able to go through uh, the blow-by-blow -blow issues in relation to the clause-by-clause -clause in the bill, as well as the recommendations. So I, if my understanding is confirmed and it's correct, Honorable Chairperson, uh, I was going to also propose that we move and adopt the report as a true reflection of the meeting. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thank you, uh, uh, Honorable Stock. But uh, I've raised my hand, Chair. Oh, okay. Okay, Honorable Jay. Chair, I do agree with the two speakers, Honorable Dikang and Honorable Masang. That's why I was putting this thing to say, I don't see what the Free State have said because. Uh, before I adopt, I must just put something that I don't see that was raised in that meeting. I do agree 100% with them. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, uh, honorable members. You know, I'm also a little bit uh, uh, confused on the processes going to discuss the bill itself on what is it that exactly we should do now? Because I am also thinking that we would at least follow what uh, Honorable Stock, Honorable Masango, including Honorable Chen, the process of this bill. I really now, a little bit uh, 
not sure exactly what is it that we are supposed to do. Maybe Obi, you can come again explaining on what is it that needs to happen from now. Otherwise, um, in terms of the report, uh, the only thing maybe we have to add is things that we think they are missing in the report and going towards the adoption process. I thought we have to add and we have to discuss and we have to uh, maybe delete if we want to and then adopt the report. So um, I'm not sure now whether where do I miss now this thing of discussing the bill. Yoli? Okay. Can Thank you, you I'll, give you a platform. Yes. I'll give you a platform. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, Chair. Um, just to um, um, respond to the query, Mrs. Lindy, where uh, she is a better person to advise in terms of procedure, what what would be the way forward? But safe to say that the the the, the inputs from Honourable Masango, Honourable Stonk, and Mamu Jane, uh, they are correct. But Mrs. Lindy will elaborate on that. Um, just maybe to, if I give to this lady, just to, to, to respond to issues that were directed to me. Uh, Mamo, Iris, um, okay, you are putting something that's not there. I think I seem to remember that submission of that father. I will add into the report that's in order. Um, Mama Jane, um, I didn't see this because I went through all the submissions of the, the provincial reports. Unfortunately, free state, that's one province I was in there. My child was not well, I had to come back, but I will make a follow up on this one because it's quite important. And um, then I will then make the amendments on the, on the report once I've um, have consulted with my colleagues. Maybe I, I missed it somewhere. Thank you, Ma, I'll do that. And with the regard to the status of the ECG clauses, if member, you remember, the advice was that we will continue with the process. Uh, but at the end of the process, the, the committee will then reject those clauses. So the legislative process is unfolding. We continue with it with all the inputs that we are getting. However, nothing changes in terms of the decision that was made. Uh, in terms of the acceptable statistical uh, statistics in terms of numbers, uh, maybe my, my colleague Unati can assist me on this one. I am not quite sure if there's any acceptable uh, statistics in Parliament in terms of the public hearings and of numbers, how many should they be? I, I'm not aware of that, but maybe Unati can assist me on this one. And then the issue of the, um, the petition. Uh, Chair, this came, was, uh, came up in Western Cape in Kailicha. There is a, a member from uh, uh, Bayakanya Foundation, it's an adoption uh, sector, who want, basically wanted to know what happened to the petition that was submitted to Parliament. And in essence, this petition called for the bill to be withdrawn uh, from Parliament, meaning the committee, before even the committee considers the bill, because they felt that it was unconstitutional. Now, uh, we are we're not aware of that. We then came back and um, <coughs> followed up made, and it then was established that the petition um, was submitted to the, there was a correspondence, let me put it that way. There was a correspondence between the, 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 the stakeholder and the office of uh, speaker. 
So as far as that petition is concerned, it ended at that level. It was never referred to us uh, through the normal processes of parliamentary ATC. So it was then left to the office of the speaker to, to deal with that because it was never referred to, 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 to the committee. Uh, but uh, ooh, our legal advisor is aware of this. I briefed him. Maybe he can then add in terms of the implications of that, because uh, I, 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 I briefed him on this matter, Chair. But as far as the committee is concerned, and Mrs. Lindo maybe can give even more clarity, uh, the, the formal process of Parliament of referring it to the committee was never done. The correspondence that we, that we saw in, in terms of follow-up were between the Speaker's office and the office replying to the stakeholders. That's where it all ended as far as this bill is concerned. It didn't come to us yet. But let me leave it to my colleagues who are better placed to uh, explain uh, the issue of the purpose of this meeting and the process for Sis Lindiwe, who now to assist me with if there's any uh, acceptable steps uh, in terms of parliament to proceed with the bill and also um, the implications of this uh, uh, petition. Thank you. To you, colleagues. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lindoli. Uh, uh, and then who's speaking now? It's Lindy, what's your person? Okay. Proceed. Okay. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, I just want to provide um, guidance regarding the process we are, we are at now. Uh, this is part of the consultation process whereby the committee gets information on its process of public participation. So this process now is to check whether what is in the report is a true ref reflection of what transpired during the public hearings. So this is like adopting the minutes. So if we agree or whether the, the, the report is a true reflection, and then we adopt the report. If there is some information that has been omitted, we add that information and then we adopt the report. And the content of the report would be useful during the formal stage of the process, because now we are still in the informal stage because the DSDA will come next week to respond to the issues raised. Salga, Justice Department and Department of Home Affairs will come to respond. So this is part of the information sharing system a process. So to capacitate members to be aware of issues that were raised during the public hearings and the response came from the, from the respective stakeholders having the responsibility of executing such problem. So when you are at the formal stage dealing with clause by clause, will be mindful of a process of a issue that has been raised and been responded to. And then you can deliberate and propose or take a recommendation on a particular organization if you feel you deem it fit uh, to be amended, to make such amendments in the former stage, which is clause by clause. For now is the consultation and then information sharing process for the committee in preparation of the former stage where we consider the bill clause by clause. So I think that's 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 where I just need to, to provide uh, guidance on. Uh, thank you very much. I think Jay will, um, and 
just to perform Jake, um, our legal advisor can can speak to the issue of the petition and issue of the states. Um, Jengwana, can you respond, or maybe I can respond later on? Because I don't foresee any a number of of of, of participants that must um, uh, have in order for a bill or an act to be recognized as uh, we conducted a public participation process. I think at that time we complied to COVID-19 regulations of not more than 100, and we went to nine provinces, and then we went to four districts. So I think that's a fair public participation process, but I think uh, the legal advisor can elaborate more in terms of whether we have complied, whether there will be any um, uh, litigation or any challenges as far as our public participation process is concerned. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Well, can we give over to our legal advisor? Uh, thank you very much, Peterson. Uh, this is Mark Germany, the legal advisor. Can you hear me clearly, Chair? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, yeah, I will start with the question relating to the petition. Uh, I don't have sufficient information as to uh, where the petition is. I've had discussions with my colleagues in the support team about uh, the legal status of the petition. But I cannot now say for sure, Chairperson, where in which office the, 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 the petition is. What I have been able to decipher from the discussions with my colleagues is that the petition has not been formally referred to the committee or has not been tabled before the committee. And uh, the fact that the, 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 the petition has not been tabled before the committee would then make it difficult for the committee to apply itself to the and that is not for it. So in that discussion with uh, Yoliswa and uh, Lindy, uh, uh, the support to the committee, I was informed that the petition was referred to the department during the consultation at the executive stage, the consultation done by the department at the executive level. And this was long before the bill was referred to parliament or tabled before parliament. Uh, the terminology in the rules is introduced. So this was before the bill was introduced in Parliament. And once again, Chairperson and members, this makes it difficult for the committee to apply itself to a document that it is told about but uh, has not been officially tabled before it, Chairperson. Uh, so in respect of this issue of the petition, Chairperson, it would be incumbent upon us as a support to the committee to determine where the petition, at which stage, or at which office the petition is. If it is in the executive, it certainly would be a matter for the executive to apply itself to the committee. If it's not, sorry, to the, to the petition. If it's not referred to the committee, the committee cannot deal with it. But I also understand, Chairperson, from our discussions that it may have been referred to the speaker's office, even though this information is not confirmed. So it would be incumbent upon us to follow up with the speaker's office to find out if it was referred there because if it was indeed referred to the speaker's office, then the situation would be slightly different from what I've explained, the implications of it. 
Because if it's referred to the Speaker's office, it therefore means that it's within Parliament, and therefore upon the Speaker's discretion to refer it to the committee. Because the Portfolio Committee itself is an extension of the Assembly, of which the Speaker is the presiding officer. In that instance, then, Chairperson, we will just have to follow up with the Speaker's office to determine if it was indeed referred there, and facilitate that it then be referred to the committee for the committee's consideration. Only when it has been referred before the committee officially as a, as a document to consider in this amendment process, can the committee uh, competently apply itself to this uh, petition that has been spoken about. So I hope I have uh, sufficiently answered the question around the issue of the petition and the implications thereof. Coming to the issue of public participation and the issue of statistics and whether the statistics that we have them now meet the threshold that is required for the bill to proceed uh, in its uh, amendment process. Yeah, in this regard, I would uh, appoint the committee to the guidance of the Constitutional Court in very key judgments that talk about public participation, which is the Doctors for Life judgment, uh, and quite recently, the uh, uh, La Mosa versus the, 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 the Speaker uh, decision. Both these decisions are decisions of the Constitutional Court, uh, uh, Chairperson. They provide uh, Parliament with uh, the necessary guidance as to what is the yardstick to test uh, whether public participation has been sufficiently undertaken or discharged as a constitutional responsibility by the committee. Chair, one of the first important things I'd like to mention about these decisions, which serve as a guidance, is that there is no barometer to test uh, the, the, the sufficient public participation, because the judgments themselves uh, and by the court's own, own uh, 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 decision, there is no uh, prescribed number of people to be consulted in order for the committee to say it has done uh, uh, public participation. The constitution and the rules grant the committee the inherent power to determine its own internal mechanisms and therefore to determine its own program for consultation taking into consideration all of the prevailing circumstances. And that would include the issue of COVID-19 that has been uh, 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 a prevailing chairperson. It would also include the laws that are applicable around the issue of COVID-19 management, which is the Disaster Management Act and the limitation of numbers uh, in public venues that can be consulted, uh, chairperson. Therefore, chair, the standard coming from the decision of the Constitutional Court is that there must be reasonable and effective public participation in the view of the committee. So it is the committee itself that must design a, cons a consultation program, and the committee must itself believe that it is reasonable, effective, and it is fair, and that all of the interested and affected parties, with meaning the key stakeholders in relation to the contents of the bill, have been consulted uh, on the bill. And then on that basis, the committee can then confirm to itself that it has indeed consulted reasonably and it has met the constitutional threshold that uh, is put upon it in terms of the committee discharging its constitutional uh, responsibility to, to, to consult the public uh, in this bill, Chairperson. Uh, okay. so, so I hope that answers the question on the, on the constitutional guidance regarding the prescribed barometer for public consultation, Chair. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
I see that uh, there are hands. Can I give over to those hands? Thank you very much, Chair. Chair, I think with the advice from the legal and content advisor, I would uh, like to second Mr. Stock in adopting the report uh, with also noting what Mom Jane raised about the free state uh, that it should be in that on, on this report. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Nshongo. Yeah. Who else is hand up? No one. Yeah? Okay. Then uh, can can we then uh, adopt the report? Sure. Yes. Yes, I move for the adoption of the report with the amendment that has been raised. I thank you, Chair. Yes. Okay. Uh, Honorable Kate, move with amendments. Any second? Honorable Mshongo did second. Honorable uh, Jane, I requested again for people to to adopt the report. So it seems as if you are also seconding. Yes, Chair, I'm seconding. Thank you very much, Honorable. Um, I think we are done with amendments, Honorable Members because you could uh, see that we have managed to add some of the things that have been highlighted. Uh, Lindy, where, where do we go from here? The report, I mean, the, the program of the committee. I yes, sure. we, we, we are done. Uh, we are done with the... Um, comprehensive report uh, that you only just presented, which uh, is a document that uh, came from the uh, nine provincial reports, reports from, from, from various provinces, meaning that you are also adopting those nine uh, provincial reports. Chair? Yes. Uh, what I'm saying, the the, the the comprehensive uh, report that Yoli presented. Uh, mm. It's a document extrapolated from the reports of, uh, of various nine provinces. provinces. Yes. Mm. Nine, provinces, nine provinces, which means that the comprehensive reports um, and also you are also adopting the, the individual reports in, in, one, in, one, in one report. Yes. Okay. No, thanks, Chair. Um, the next item um, for discussion the is the program. Yes, Chair. Yes. Must I flight it? Please. Okay. Is it order? Uh, can you see it? Yes. 
Okay, Chair. Must I take the committee through? Please. Okay. Uh, Chair and members, and I think we're almost at the end of the program. Um, we are presenting today's program. And then next week, which is uh, Professor uh, Skelton and Yoli and adoption of the, of the program done. Uh, next week, Chair, uh, we were supposed to do the briefing from social development, also the same um, responding to issues raised during public hearings uh, on the Children's Amendment Bill. We also chair scheduled to also get a response from SAGA. Um, they responded um, to say that they are not available uh, next week to brief the committee. They have other, other engagement. So they requested that we schedule an alternative date for them to appear before the committee. So next week it's only DSD and, and minutes. Um, and the second chair, we will receive a briefing from the Department of Home Affairs, as well as the Department of Justice, also responding to the issues raised during public hearings. And on the 4th uh, of March, um, the Department of Basic Education is responding to issues raised during provincial public hearings. As well, on the 9th, we are starting with the formal stage. Uh, where we will start adopting the motion of desirability, and then we'll start uh, with the clause by clause uh, session, and then up to the 25th of March. Chair, I also want to bring to the attention of the committee on a request um, uh, that uh, the committee should also um, schedule a meeting, uh, a joint meeting with the Portfolio Committee on Basic Education to get a progress on the migration of the ECD from DSD to basic education. Uh, after consultation with the chairperson and, and also to look at the program of the DBE chair, I wish to also inform the committee that uh, we can set aside the date of the 9th of March for the joint uh, uh, committee uh, with uh, provincial MECs and HODs to come and present their readiness for the migration of the ECD from DSD to, 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 to DBE. So the, uh, alternate, the tentative date is the 9th of March, and then we'll also sketch, try to fit in uh, the SALGA to come and present uh, to the committee the responses uh, pertaining to the issues raised during the public hearing. Um, so the program ends on the 25th. I uh, think Parliament um, closes on the 25th of March. Uh, Chair, I don't think, and members, I don't think by this time the committee will already uh, concluded the process. We might need uh, also um, look at using other Fridays or maybe uh, two or three days during consequence because we, the um, House Chairperson uh, instructed that uh, legislation committees need to finalize legislation uh, during this term, which is, um, which is March. So, and secondly, Chair and committee members, the issue of the um, fundraising amendment bill, we'll consider that one in the next term. So that's the committee program before the committee for consideration and adoption. I thank you, Chair.
and members. Honorable members, there is a report that is presented to us. What do you say? Chair, it's, it's Honorable Abrams here. I move for the adoption of um, the program and thank you very much for including that draft date on ECD um, migration. Kenda. Member Masango's hand is up, Chair. Masango. Thank you, Chair. Before I, I second, which I, I, I probably will, I just would like to know, we had this discussion, now that we're talking about the program of the committee, the legal advisor earlier on uh, outlined what is possible to happen with regards to the petition. I just would want to know if, if I'm not preempting anything, I want to know, I would like to know if that would interfere with the processing of the bill to meet the deadline for which this bill is being done. Thank you so much. Otherwise, I, 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 I second the bill. I mean, I second the, the adoption of the, uh, of the program. Thank you, Chair. Okay. okay, thank you, Honorable Masango. Uh, the next item, Lindy, it's closure. We conclude the business, Chair, yes. Yeah, okay. Thank you ever so much to everyone, my colleagues, honorable members, and the officials. The meeting stands adjourned. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, honorable members.